Well, hello there. Have you ever noticed that whenever the topic of economics comes up, especially when it's talking about things like government spending, government programs, welfare, social security, nationalized health care, et cetera, et cetera, we commonly get told, especially when we bring out that the, the fiscal problems with the way that they're going about implementing these programs or whether or not they're actually going to be able to achieve their end states, we are almost repeatedly told that, well, this isn't about money. This is about people. And so there's this, this implication that if you're looking at a government program or if you're looking about a government attempt to, quote, help people, and you're pointing out the fiscal problems with it, the economic problems with it, it's because you're focused on the wrong thing. You should be focused on the people. And if you were focused on the people, then you would see why it was just absolutely paramount that we make this program work. And so the, the implication is that those of us on the conservative or libertarian side are too obsessed with money while the people on the left are obsessed with people. And so therefore they're the good guys and we're the bad guys and we just need to get on board and figure out how to make it all happen. The question is, is are they right? Do they have a point? And we're going to be discussing this from a unique perspective today brought to us by Robert, a member of our community chat. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument Powered. By Good Ranchers. Thank you so much for helping us choose this episode, Robert. If you would like to play a role in driving the direction of next week's episode or episodes that we have going forward, you can do so by joining our community chat, which you can find the link to join in the description of the episode today. Thank you so much for joining us, and let's get right into it. All right, as always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates for now, but other than that, a relatively good person. We have with us my beautiful bride, Queen of the Bees, returned from getting the milk. Hello, everyone. And then, of course, we have our political prognosticator and resident historian, Christian Hines. I just wanted to point out, Roger, I'm very sorry that Nick and Hamilton got your name wrong. <laughs> Robert. Oh, my gosh. It's Roger for the second time. Wait, did I do it? Oh, man. Twice my now bad. you said It's because I wrote it down as Robert. Let me see. I'm double checking. Roger, I'm sorry, Roger man. Roger Briggs. My bad. My bad. And then, of course, we have Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. I got it wrong, too. It's okay. Yeah. All right. We all, it's, it was my to fault. Be the wet it's blanket. my fault. I went through that. I was, I, was, I was actually reading through our community chat. I was like, oh, okay, I got I to gotta make sure I mention Roger in this. And then I wrote it down as Robert. Roger, my bad. My bad. I'm going to blame Christian. I don't know. <laughs> the guy who pointed it out. All yeah, right, cool. exactly. That's that's what happens. <laughs> this right, will be so, a good episode. So first, first things first. Um, I, I want to talk very briefly because I think this is obvious to most of our listeners. But just in case there's anybody watching that's, you know, kind of looking at this, going, "My gosh, are we really going to do another economics episode?" Yes, and here's why. Here's why this matters. Because a lot of times when we have these discussions, as I kind of talked about earlier, it's this idea that, well, you're focused on the economics and I'm focused on the people. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. And I, th I think most of us understand this, but sometimes we have to point it out that, that economics is not an engine. It's not some esoteric thing that politicians are supposed to be managing for us. It's not something that belongs to companies. E economics is supposed to be just free people engaging in voluntary transactions. The, the study of economics is the study of the use of scarce resources which have alternative uses. And I take that right out of basic economics from Thomas Sowell. And so when we talk about economics and we talk about all these ways that we potentially want to help people, economics factors directly into that. And so anybody that's trying to separate people from economics doesn't understand economics, doesn't understand that the reason why we bring up these arguments is not because we're just worried about the money. No, we're worried about the people it's going to affect because if you set up a bad program which has is based upon bad economic principles it's going to hurt real people 
And so don't let anybody right off the bat, don't let anybody get away with that garbage distinction, which doesn't exist. We're talking about the economics because we care about the people, right? I just want to make sure everyone understands that there's this, there's this really, I'm going to play it on air once and Christian's probably going to mock me for it. But there was this, um, uh, this group that they, they, they actually did a rap battle. Um, and I mentioned it before, but it was between Fred, it was between, uh, uh, Hayek and Keynes. And it was called, I think, Fight of the Century. And it was actually, I trust me when I say this, I know I'm, I'm like my nerd score is like going up incredibly. It's actually good. It is really well done. Really well done. And um, one of the things that Hayek makes in this point is the, you know, the economy is not, you know, an engine. There's no, you know, mechanic to fix it. The economy is organic. It's us, right? That's what the economy is. And so I just wanted to make sure that I got that out right off the bat before we get into this next discussion, because so much of what we're going to be talking about today is going to be addressing um, the, the issue that Roger brought up. And so let's go right into the resolution. So Roger works as a teacher at a high school. Um, he's been helping out the high school debate team. And the resolution that was provided reads like this. Resolved, the United States federal government should substantially increase fiscal redistribution in the United States by adopting a federal jobs guarantee, expanding Social Security, and or providing a basic income. Now, here's what Roger also had to say to provide us some more context. He goes, um, this is all high school debate across the country. Millions of kids every weekend arguing that the state should have more input on the economy under the guise of equality. Yes, there are negative arguments to be made, but the National Speech and Debate Association focuses on other ways of addressing income inequality. And the way I read that, and Roger, if you're watching or listening, please feel free to comment and, and correct me. But the way I read that is that it's this idea that even though this is a debate, and even though obviously one side will be debating against these sorts of things, the the kind of the the presupposition with all of it is, well, of course the federal government should be doing something. It's just a question of what it should be doing and what would achieve the best results. And so there, again, there's this underlying presupposition that of course, this is the only fair or good or noble way to look at this. If you actually want to address things like equality or inequity or whatever it is. Um, so now we're just going to have a debate on, on how, okay, how do we, how do we best do it through this mechanism? And we're going to argue today that that's not true at all. In fact, when, when we look at the title of this episode, we talk about wokeonomics, how socialist frame robbery is compassion. There's a couple of things I, I want to draw distinctions with. There, there's essentially three main ways that economies are organized. One way is the complete state ownership of the means of production, right? The government essentially owns everything. Now, you might still be able to own your toothbrush or you might be able to own your clothes, but your apartment, your vehicle, uh, the company you work for, all of those things are owned by the government. That, that's one way to do it, the, the state-run mechanism. The, the other is what you would call a heavily state-influenced economy. And that's one where you're still allowed to own private property, but when it comes to major national industries, and this could be energy industry, this could be transportation, this could be uh, things like healthcare, education, that's predominantly run by the state. And then the state will allow other industries to exist outside of its direct ownership, but never outside of its heavily influenced control over the industry. And that can take place through things like taxes, through regulations, through subsidies, through labor laws, any number of things, right? So the, the next level down from that state ownership is kind of heavily, you know, um, heavily controlled and subsidized 
um, and regulated industry by the state. And then the third level really starts off with this idea of free market economics. So the presupposition within a free economics, free market economics system is the idea that, of course, you as the individual can own property. You have control over your labor. You have control over your mind. And so the economy within a free market is really based off of free people deciding where their talents and skills and abilities best fit within the marketplace. And so over time, some people accumulate a great deal of wealth because they do a good job providing goods and services at a price that people are willing to pay. Um, other people might not do as well, but they still find what they can do within the economy in order to make a living. Sometimes their preferences prevent them from making a lot of money, but they can still enjoy their job. The, the key characteristic within that free market is the idea of voluntary transaction. I can't force you. You can't force me. We can only agree to trade if we actually think we're both going to benefit or believe we're going to benefit from the transaction. Now, here's what I will tell you. All economies in the world are essentially mixed economies. There's no completely free economy with the possible exception of North Korea. And even that there's going to be exceptions. There's no complete state ownership of the economy. So everything's mixed. The question is, is what is the groundwork? What is, what is the basis for how your economy is built? If you believe that the state should have a lot of control, but there's still going to be some private ownership, that's where you're going to see a lot more state ownership of things like airlines or railroads. You might see state ownership of the mining industry. Uh, you're definitely going to see state ownership of, of maybe your defense industry or um, shipping and things like that. Then you get into areas that, again, start off with more free market oriented economies, and you don't have state owned airlines. You don't have state owned uh, railroads. You don't have state owned mines, right? So like the United States is, is generally, or has been for most of us, generally on the side of a, a more free market oriented approach. That has significantly changed over the last 25 years, but that has been the starting point. Whereas a country like, let's just say, um, a lot of countries within Europe started off with a system where the state had far more ownership and far more control over their system. And then maybe gradually over time, there was more privatization, but there was still a heavy state influence, right? So that just kind of lays the groundwork. Next, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into the resolution that Roger sent us, and we're going to start asking some questions. Now, the first thing that they say in this resolution is the United States federal government should substantially increase fiscal redistribution. And this is the part where I got to give Christian a lot of uh, credit for the title here, where he said how socialists frame robbery is compassion. Um, one of the, one of the, I love how they say fiscal redistribution. What do they mean by that? Right. That's before you get into before you get into anything else about, you know, larger arguments about what works and what doesn't work. The first thing that you should always ask someone to do when they talk about the federal government engaging or substantially increasing fiscal redistribution in the United States is what do you mean by fiscal redistribution? And what they mean is the government is going to take from one person and it's going to give to somebody else. That's what it means. But, you know, what they think is that the government just has this giant pool of money and that some people get more of it than others and they just want a bigger piece of the pie. They don't take into account the work that goes into earning the money on the front side for the people. They just look at, well, I mean, taxes, we're able to just dole money out as though as though the government's sitting on some kind of a gold mine. A gold mine and like they can just pass it out to people. 
Well, they they have a gold mine. And that's called the it's printing called the money printer. Oh, believe me, we're gonna get to we're gonna get to modern monetary theory on this. But I, I think the reason why we we spend a little bit of time on this is because it's important. A lot of times we get used to these words, we just hear them commonly, and we don't actually think about what they are. And what it is is the coercive use of force in order to for that politicians will then decide what is going to be taken, how it's going to be taken, how much of it's going to be taken, and then who it's going to be given to. And if we just automatically assume that this is an appropriate thing to do, well, then you don't ask a lot of questions about how the government does it. But it's important to actually break this down and to ask people a very moral question, right? Before you get into any of the practical economics of it, what's the moral question of, is it okay to do that? It, is it okay to use coercion and the threat of violence to take people's stuff and give it to other people? And under what conditions are you going to do that? Now, the conditions that are, are usually presented a justification for this is, well, no, everybody's contributing and everybody's benefiting from government services. But that's not what they're talking about here. Yeah, I want to read this resolution that was proposed at this high school debate format. And, and I already read it. I, I know. I, I want to no. read it one more time because <laughs> okay. I, I want to deconstruct something that's in there where it says the United States federal government should substantially increase federal redistribution in the United States by adopting a federal jobs guarantee, expanding social security and or providing a basic income. One thing that, that I, I love with the, the terrible framing of this, because that, that was the angle that really caught my eye the most when I first read this is, is the framing. Obviously I disagree. You know, I, I would take the negative side of this resolution, but it's actually worse than that. It's not just that I disagree with the resolution. I disagree with the resolution's premise. Yeah. What's not written in here, but what's implicitly stated in the resolution, what's implicitly stated in this is that these things are inherently a good thing. And that if you did them, it would result in a positive, good outcome, but it provides no evidence or justification to suggest or prove that if you radically, you know, redistributed wealth at the federal level by, you know, doing things like expanding Social Security or, you know, a federal jobs guarantee or, um, you know, providing for a basic income, which, by the way, who, who gets to define what a basic income yeah. is? That varies by region and state. But like it, it doesn't provide any sort of evidence or reason for for how doing those things would result in a positive outcome. So for example, a bank robber does a really good job of redistributing wealth. Oh yeah, absolutely. Very good job of redistributing wealth, but very few people would say that a bank robber is actually doing something positive for the community or, or, or for the country or for you know the shareholders of the bank or the people who deposit their money at the bank or yeah. the government that has to insure those deposits. Like everybody loses out when the bank robber robs a bank except for the bank robber. I, and, and, and so like I use that as an example because the, again, there is no guarantee whatsoever that if you just simply redistribute wealth, that that's going to create a positive outcome. Well, it's, it's, I, I once described it as, it's kind of like moralizing marketing of a bad thing. So for instance, if a, if a homeless man breaks into your, your home and steals your stuff, there's two ways you can describe that action. You describe it as somebody came in and burglarized you, or you can describe it as local man redistributes wealth to homeless person right now. What both of those are technically true, but I would argue that one of them is horribly misleading when it comes to understanding the moral premise of what just took place in the action. But unfortunately, a lot of times when we hear politicians talking about redistribution, 
it, it again, it's it's local man redistributes wealth to homeless or person. Or it's Robin Hood. Yeah, it, it's I mean they the, look at they look at things like Robin Hood and they're going, oh, he's taking from the rich, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. Um, when in reality, <laughs> uh, Robin Hood was taking from the government who had already robbed from the poor and giving it back to the poor. Yeah. Rob, Robin actually, Robin had actually stole from the government and gave it back to the tax victims. <laughs> like exactly. That's what it was. You know, I mean, Prince John was not, you, you mean know, the sheriff of sheriff Nottingham, Nottingham was, was not a, a good guy. Yeah. He, like, so the, the, so I was going to, did you, I, I, I was just going to say that I, I feel like that, that breaking down the framing here and, and, this is one of the biggest problems that I think so many conservatives have is that they kind of just operate within within the boundaries that the left sets for them. Yeah. The left gets to set the narrative and gets to set the Overton window. And then we just operate within that field. And then we wonder why we constantly lose over and over yeah. and over again on the culture, within economics, within elections. It's it's because we don't even challenge the premise. For example, the conservative side in this debate format probably got up there and said, no, I, I disagree with the resolution, and here's the reason why. Because, you know, we, we've seen studies that show that massively increasing the minimum wage increases unemployment, and that, you know, increasing the top marginal tax rate might result in capital flight, and we don't want those things because it'll it'll slow down economic growth. All of that is true. Yep. None of that will actually make a successful argument that will convince anybody of anything. Because ultimately... And it sucks that this is the case, but ultimately most people make these decisions based on emotion. And the left is really, really good at making emotional arguments for robbery. And the right usually just operates within the narrative that the left sets on these fronts and then tries to push back within the confines of that narrative right. rather than challenging the narrative itself, the premise itself. That's why I said before, I don't just take issue with the resolution. I take issue with the premise of the resolution. Well, and that's what, and again, there, there's a reason why a lot of the times this is done is because they want you to accept the premise so that you can only argue within a very, very narrow window and, and essentially lose. So the first thing that you're going to question on something like this is when you say increased federal redistribution, what do you mean and to whom, right? What, why are you taking money from people? How are you going to redistribute to what purpose and whether, so before you even get, before you even get to whether or not this sort of scheme would work to achieve your desired end states, you have to first morally justify why you think this is appropriate. So that's step one. Let, let's go to this step, the second part here that I love, and that's adopting a federal jobs guarantee as if... <sighs> Let, let me explain. I got a great federal jobs guarantee for you, Nick. Yeah, war? War. Yeah. <laughs> Russia has yeah. an amazing jobs guarantee going oh, yeah. on right now. Yeah. I actually texted you last night that the Russians are, are apparently going to be engaging in partial mobilization. They want to they pull another 400,000 men and, and send them off to Ukraine, which if they do that would bring their total number of troops in Ukraine to almost a million. Yeah. That's a great way oh, to yeah. provide a jobs guarantee. For well, and, and, and going, going back, going back to that rap battle I talked about between Keynes and Hayek, right? One of the things they always said is um, fixing employment, fixing employment's a straightforward craft when the nation's at war and there's a draft. And it, and it basically said that, um, if you staff everyone in the Navy or if you staff everyone in the army and fleet, you'll have full employment and nothing to eat. <laughs> I was like, that's awesome. But this is what I want people to understand about here is when they say adopting a federal jobs guarantee, there's the image people have in their mind. And then there's a practical reality of what that would actually entail. So for instance, if you say a federal jobs guarantee, presumably what you're meaning is anybody that wants a job gets a job. The question is, what about the people that don't want to work? 
How, how do you address that? Are you going to require them to work? Is that what the jobs guarantee means? You're going to require them to work? No, their job is to breathe in and out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, the, so if you're just going to require jobs for everyone that wants one, well, then presumably you have to require a job or provide a job that they would actually want to do. Well, for the people who don't want to work, you just put them in the DEI departments. <laughs> exactly. Or they already don't have to work. Yeah. <laughs> Well, but the thing, this idea that the federal government could just snap its fingers and create a federal jobs guarantee. Okay. If by job you mean that you can provide a place where someone has to show up and collect a paycheck. Yes. You could theoretically guarantee that the government could just print the money, make it happen. They could create a job of digging ditches and filling them back in. And they'd be real passionate about their work. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we've done well. The, the thing is, is that this what this signifies to me is they don't even know what the hell a job is. Right. A, a job, a job is supposed to be a task which is tied directly to some sort of activity that needs to be done because people actually want that work completed. It brings we, value to others. It brings value. We have a few people in the comments that ask some really relevant questions that I, 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 I want to ask you. Uh, Happy Camp, uh, Cappy and uh, Sean C. bring up Roosevelt's New Deal. Yes. Um, so one of them said, what about Roosevelt's work program, though? And then the other one said, you know, what about the, the WPA and the CCC? So yep. the, the Works Progress Administration and, and the, the Civil Conservation um, Civil Corps. Conservation Sir, um, no Civil Corps. Con yeah, Civil Conser uh, Conservation Corps, and there were a few others too. Yeah, uh, I, well, not a few. There were a lot of other lot of programs, uh, job programs that the New Deal created. So, in fact, this is probably something in the context of this debate resolution. Which again, we've already talked about how we have issues with the framing of it. But within the context of this debate resolution, I assure you that, that, and you know this, that like the positive side of that resolution, the people debating in favor of it would almost certainly point to the new deal and say, this isn't radical. We've done it before. Yeah. And it works when you have high unemployment, providing a federal jobs guarantee gives people who otherwise can't find a place to work, the ability to find work. Why do you have a problem? And, and it's a win-win because then they can go and build infrastructure yeah. that, that might be needed. Why on, why on earth would you be against that? Because none of it's free. That's why they act like, well, nothing was happening and now something's happening. Like, no, what the, in order to, in order to give people money to do that job, where did you get it? Well, you had to get it from people that were actually conducting productive labor within the marketplace. You had to take their money away from them, which they could have used to hire more people, expand their operations, or buy more products in another field that then could have used the additional profits to be able to hire more people. You took all of that away. You gave it to politicians and you said, okay, now go make work for these people, right? There, there's a perfect example of this when Milton Friedman visited China and Milton Friedman went over there and he, and the, the Chinese government was showing him this, this wonderful program. They had this wonderful infrastructure project that was going on. And he noticed that they had just like thousands of people out there with shovels digging ditches. And he said, well, why are you doing it this way? Why wouldn't you bring in heavy equipment in order to, to do this much more faster and efficiently? And the government official said, Oh, Mr. Professor Friedman, you don't understand. This is a jobs program to which Friedman responded. Oh, in that case, take away their shovels because you'll need twice as many people if they don't have shovels. It reminds me of the negative railroad that Bastiat came up with. Yeah, it's it's this idea that, oh, well, this person wasn't doing anything and now the government has provided them gainful employment. No, the government had to take money out of the economy, which prov was providing people gainful employment based off of the goods and services that people wanted done. 
It took money away from that and then gave it to something that the government wanted done. And so this is, Hazlitt talks a lot about this in his book, Economics in One Lesson. And, and the one lesson is very simple. Because when you look at economics, you can't just see the seen. You have to also imagine the unseen. And it's the idea that the politician takes the money and they build a bridge or the politician takes some money and they start a program and they, they go to the building where the program is housed or they go to the bridge that is built and said, ah, if it wasn't for us, this never would have existed. To which Hazlitt reminds them, well, first of all, that's not necessarily true. The bridge might have been con constructed either way. He goes, but you have failed to look at all of the things that will never exist now because you prioritized the bridge over what everybody else was doing in their own voluntary transactions within the marketplace, right? That's gone now. And if you're not willing to actually understand that that was a trade-off that took place, then you don't really understand how economics works. You have no conception of the people that you might be hurting at the same time that you're pointing to the thing that you've done as, as the pinnacle of what that money and what those resources could have represented. And that's a very, very dangerous way to look at things because central planners and politicians in general don't have the best track record of efficiently using money in order to achieve positive end states. In fact, they have a reputation for fraud, waste, abuse, graft, helping people with political connections as opposed to customers that actually need things that are vital to their own lives. So why would you automatically assume that they're the best people to spend this money in the first place? And the idea that a guaranteed, a federal jobs guarantee is going to ensure that we don't have unemployment or is going to significantly reduce unemployment. No, what you're going to do is you're not creating jobs, you're creating work. And that's very different. Yeah. If you really want to create jobs, you need to create entrepreneurs and the, to create entrepreneurs, you need to alleviate the burden off of the shoulders of the people who are trying to break into the market. You know, there's so many creative people out there and there's so many people that have these amazing ideas and what stops them from moving forward with the idea? Oh, I know. It's the, it's the idea that they can't afford to, they the, can't afford all the government fees and all of the licensure and all of the regulations and everything. I mean, look at some of these meat packing facilities and things like that, where they can't afford to be a small farmer and put out really quality product because the USDA just squashes them. And so, you know, if you really want to create more jobs, create more entrepreneurs and to create more entrepreneurs, we need to alleviate regulation. Yeah. Does the marketplace create more entrepreneurs or the government? Oh no. It's well, the, the government kills entrepreneurship <laughs> yeah. and that's all they can do. So the only way the government can, can reverse course is to alleviate the burden that they themselves have put on the entrepreneur. And that's when you can create more jobs. Yeah. I mean, the, the only way you can have more jobs, more employees with opportunity is to create more bosses and to create more bosses. You've got to alleviate their burden to become an entrepreneur and to run a business. I, I will say that the biggest thing that stopped me, I like, I finally started a sole proprietorship about eight years ago. Um, and I was only comfortable with a sole proprietorship. And the, the only reason why I did that was because, okay, I could file my taxes as an individual and it would be easy to manage and I didn't have to worry about employees and 1099s or, or anything else. And, and that, was, that was the only, I mean, now that we're actually expanding into something or we're looking to expand into something a little bit greater than that, my biggest concern is not finding customers. My biggest concern is, is not finding people that want the products or services we're providing. My biggest concern is, what sort of federal, state, local regulation, rule, tax am I missing? Like, not that I even, uh, fine, I'll pay it, fine, I'll do it, fine, I'll comply. But 
when you got 77,000 pages of federal code, it becomes, it becomes a, 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 a detrimental thing yeah. when it comes to increasing entrepreneurship and increasing jobs. And so the idea that the same federal government that has created so many of these problems is now going to be responsible for guaranteeing jobs. Yeah. They can't guarantee jobs in the sense that they're going to actually be able to provide someone with meaningful labor. All they can guarantee is that once again, they will be able to steal money from somebody else that created in the market by providing goods and services to somebody that had to voluntarily do business with them. And now they can give it to somebody to do a job for which the taxpayer has no say. Yeah, That's it. So that's not a jobs program. That's a make work program. Can that's I, what the federal government is. Can I give about. a quick example of how I've experienced the IRS and everybody, you know, making it more difficult to be an entrepreneur myself. Yeah. So I, I do digital content and help service quite a few different clients and used to do a lot more. But one of the biggest hurdles that I had was in hiring editors. And in this industry, it's very, um, very often the relationship between business owner and editor is through a contract relationship, not necessarily part-time work yeah. or full-time employee. And one of the restrictions that the IRS puts on that relationship is that I'm not able to dictate, you know, when someone works, how someone does the job or, you know, how often they do the job and, and, or, or even pay them by hour a lot. And so in that situation, the IRS makes it more, like, I almost have to hire someone full-time. Yeah. And then pay taxes on, you know, their employment, insurance, and all these different things. And in my situation, it's oftentimes better for me just to do all the work myself yeah. and then actually give work to someone who may be much younger than me, someone who's looking for experience, someone who's willing to do the work, and makes it very difficult. I, I had, no, that's a great point. I remember f talking about this when the Democrats in Congress were trying to pass massive restrictions on what we call the gig economy. Yeah. And it was this idea is like, Oh, these greedy business owners don't want to hire people full time in order to have to provide them all their benefits. It's like you made it difficult, if not impossible to hire them in the first place, because instead of that person being able to negotiate their pay based off of what they wanted, you determined that they were going to have to be all of these benefits. And as a result, I can't afford to pay them the money they want because what it costs for me to hire them is significantly higher than their paycheck. Like I, I had to explain this yeah. to an economics professor, you know, in the house where it's like you, you do understand that the total compensation for the employee is much higher than their paycheck. And the reason why it's much higher in part is because the people in this room that thought they were smarter than everybody else determined that they would be the ones to require, well, no, you got to have so many maternity days leave and, you know, paternity days leave and you got to have so many sick leave and you got to have unemployment insurance and you got to have this and you got to have that and you got to have a certain degree of medical. You did all of this. And so now there's a lot of people going, well, I can't afford to hire you as a full-time employee, but I can pay you a lot more per hour. I can pay you a lot more per project. If, if you, if I don't have the burden of providing all these other benefits and there's a lot of people in the gig economy, they're like, yes, I don't need all this other crap that I might not even use. What I need is the paycheck. And so if you're willing to pay me more, I don't care about this other stuff. And that's what's great when people can decide for themselves yeah. what they value in a contract. But when the government is constantly coming in and going, no, 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 we'll decide what the contract looks like. Because we want to protect workers. Exactly. Well, you're not protecting them. So that's that's the second part. Um, and, and again, in this whole issue of, of redistribution, if you want to know, if, if there was any positive mechanism for redistribution, the only one I can think of is good ranchers. Really? Because good ranchers doesn't engage in coercive redistribution. No, 
What Good Ranchers does is it facilitates your connection with quality meat. That's what it does. See, it redistributes in the way that it's supposed to work within the economy. Good Ranchers goes out and they find producers of fine quality American beef, poultry, seafood, pork. And then what they do is they collect it and then you pay Good Ranchers and they redistribute it to you. All in a series of voluntary actions, which you are going to be incredibly happy with. I can promise you right now, if you sign up for one of the subscriptions, or if you just do a one-time order, maybe you just want to try it out. Maybe, look, you want to date first before you marry him. I get it. That's fine. All right. You can go out there. If you use the promo code Nick, you're going to get $25 off. You're going to get free shipping. And then when you decide to make the plunge, when you decide, you know what? It's time for us to go steady, good ranchers. And you get a subscription. You get a subscription, right? Where every month, every month that is coming in, not only are you going to get the $25 off of that order, not only are you going to get the free shipping, you're also going to receive two pounds of quality ground beef in with every order. order. Every order, every order on that subscription. I mean, that's incredible. That's incredible. That is, that is someone that wants to make a commitment with you that values you. Because they lock in the price for two years. Lock in the price too. You want to talk about, there's not many things in this world that are that can actually are inflation proof. We're going to talk about modern monetary theory. Well, Good Ranchers is fighting modern, modern monetary theory by locking you into a price. So I want you to know right now, this is a great program. They've done a lot to be able to help our show. We've actually got some swag. We might be, uh, yeah. we might be displaying a little bit later, but go right now. Promo code Nick, $25 off. You get free shipping, and if you sign up for one of the subscriptions, you are going to get two pounds of ground beef with every order in that subscription. So go check that out right away, and thank you, Good Ranchers, for sponsoring the show. So we've talked about redistribution, yep. and we've talked about a jobs guarantee. Now. But now you get into the political suicide oh, yeah. of Did you mention the super chat, though? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's go. We got a couple of super chats here. All right. Um, yeah, can you scroll down a little Gibson bit? What was actually okay. really funny. So real quick, <laughs> scroll down a little bit. All right. Professor Keen, I really appreciate the super chat to answer your question. No, <laughs> I'm not going to get into the Susanna Gibson uh, scandal in the 57th district in Virginia right now. If people want to check that out, you can go on Twitter. You can go look at the article in the Washington post, but it's, it's not really conducive to this show. I don't want to interrupt the flow. Never for interrupt audience. an enemy when they're making a mistake. Either. Oh my gosh. Not only that, but it's yeah. Anyways, <laughs> it is what it is, but thank Thank you. Uh, Rob Bickle, the new deal, uh, the new deal was that the IRS would take money at gunpoint. <laughs> That's a great way it, to describe you, it. You know, what's one of the fascinating things about the new deal program. And this is a good segue into talking about social security. Um, here's what people generally don't want you to understand about the new deal. First of all, it did not get us out of the great depression. Anybody that tells you that has not really studied what took place with the new deal. Um, many provisions of the new deal were initially shot down by the Supreme Court so they because they were so wildly unconstitutional. Uh, New Deal programs included things like you not being able to set your own price for the dry cleaning that you were providing for people. They actually took people to court over this. They actually took you know minority business owners to court over things like charging too little for dry cleaning. Um, they, they had the, what they called the, uh, I think it was the chicken case where they tried to, they, they did, they federally prosecuted somebody for allowing people to pick their own chicken when they went to the store to purchase it, because this was a violation of new deal provisions. But I'm, I'm going to go ahead and ask a question here very quick. Christian, you're not allowed to answer. All right. If the audience wants to, they can chime in. I'm going to ask Tina, then I'm going to ask Hamilton. Oh no. All right. Here it goes. The new deal, many provisions of the new deal, especially when we look at like the national recovery administration 
when we look at things like the Blue Eagle program, where that was a symbol that people put in their storefronts to let them know that they were complying with these government programs because they were good patriots. Does anybody want to take a guess on what world leader was heavily influential in many of the New Deal programs? What foreign leader was heavily influential philosophically with a lot of the New Deal programs in the United States? So much so that Hugh Johnson, who was responsible for running the National Recovery Act for a while, would actually carry books and distribute them. Anybody want to guess? I'm going to go with Stalin. Tina went with Stalin? Marx. Karl Marx, not really a world leader. Can I guess now? Am I allowed to guess? I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna give the, uh, I was gonna give the audience a little bit of chance to catch up here, but um, okay, oh, somebody got oh, it. Rocky Top Tom Mussolini. Oh, Mussolini, very good, very. I, I had a feeling Rocky would get that. Yeah, Mussolini. If you actually look at Mussolini, Hugh Johnson used to pass out tracks called the Corporate State, and it was based off of Italian fascist principles for running an economy. So when you look at the New Deal, just remember that the New Deal was one of the, the initial times in U.S. history where they really played around with a lot of the sort of economic policies that the Italian fascists were using and were attempting to replicate them here in the United States. And when we look at Social Security, and, and here the, the topic is to expand Social Security. So when you say expand Social Security, all I can think is that you're going to expand the amount of money associated with it, or you're going to expand the number of people eligible for it. And usually when they talk about expansion, they mean the number of people eligible for it, or the age at which you can collect Or it. the amount of money that you're paying out. Yeah. Wait, wait, I mean, it's, it's currently fixed to inflation, which I thought was funny because it was, I think it was last year, Joe Biden tweeted, like, you know, under my watch, we had the largest increase in Social security payment checks, you know, in the last like 40 years. And yeah. then it was like the, the, the Twitter, uh, community notes was like social security is fixed to the inflation rate. So what Biden's really bragging about is the largest inflation rate in 40 years. <laughs> oh my goodness! But like, um, yeah, they roasted him in the community notes, but like we've talked about this before. Um, unfortunately, I mean, to, to quote Thomas Sowell, you know, the, the people demand the impossible and only liars can suffice. Like it, it, <laughs> it, it is, it, we've gotten to a point where the truth is unelectable and, yeah. and we openly talk about how, if you criticize at all the way in which we handle social security, for example, um, I did the math once with the average amount of money that people pay into social security every single year. If that money was just put into the S&P 500, the most bland ETF you could possibly think of, like yeah. SPY or something like that, and you let it sit there for 30 years, or actually, sorry, for 40 years, from age 20 to age 60. Anybody who did that, on average, and again, it varies, of course, right? But on average, they would have over $1.5 million by the time they're 60. Yeah. That they, they would just have. Yeah. And <laughs> yet... Instead, you're being told, here's your, you know, $1,800 check or something like that. And, and I mean, it, it, it's, it's political suicide to say it, but like, it is a Ponzi scheme. It is a Ponzi scheme. Well, and then people get angry about you, you calling it a Ponzi scheme. Do you remember when I was, when, the I, year I, I ran, when you the ran, year I ran and for it was Congress. Republicans that were yeah. saying, I, I, I need to say this for the audience to, to explain just how bad the problem has gotten. When Nick ran for Congress three years ago. He, he dared to say that Social Security, as it is currently constructed and managed by the federal government, is a Ponzi scheme. Did he say that people didn't deserve money? No. Did he say that, that we're going to throw Graham off a cliff? No. <laughs> Did he say that... <laughs> 
Did he say any of these outrageous stuff that you usually see in ads? No, he didn't say any of that. All that he pointed out was that Social Security relies on paying older Americans with the wages of younger Americans that are entering the workforce. And you're transferring money from younger Americans to older Americans. You're transferring money from one group of people to another group of people. And you're constantly requiring more and more younger people to fund the lifestyle and retirement of older people. It is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. And Again, that doesn't mean that the people receiving Social Security are bad people. Well, that doesn't I, mean no. grandma's the bad guy, right? I, I even but s- hang on, I want to end ahead, the story. Yeah. The end of the story was is that Nick said that, and guess what? It was Republican campaign consultants and Republican politicians yep. in the Republican Party of Virginia that were going out there publicly saying, we need to stop Nick from running for Congress. We can't have him be our nominee because he's committed political suicide by calling Social Security a Ponzi scheme. Republicans, the party of free markets and and we need a smaller federal government. We're the ones that were saying, we can't have somebody state the literal, state the obvious that everybody who actually understands anything about economics and understands anything about demographics and understands anything about the the ballooning federal deficit you're not allowed to to speak what is absolutely the truth because it's politically inconvenient no. to do so. Well, what wandering warrior points out too, he goes, it used to be 15 to one workers to retirees. Now it's around three to one. And yeah, he's correct. And what I even, here's, here's my complete statement. My complete statement was, is the politicians in DC are running social security like a Ponzi scheme. And, and to Christian's point, all that means is if you look at the structure of a Ponzi scheme, it's the idea that the money that is coming in is not going into some sort of investment investment fund, which is accruing interest, which you then use to pay out to other people or to pay out to investors. It's just the money comes in, it goes out, more money comes in, it goes out, more money comes in, it goes out. And the reason why Ponzi schemes eventually collapse is because you don't have enough money going in to pay all the people that are the beneficiaries or the quote investors. Well, it is illegal to operate a retirement fund or investment fund this way in the private sector. It's illegal. The federal government will come in heavily prosecute you, rake you over the coals for lying people and swindling them out of their retirement. If you operate your retirement fund, the way the government runs social security, like that's what I was pointing out. You can't say that. Why? Because it's untrue. No, because it's politically untenable. I I even said, look, I think we should keep our commitments to all the people that are are at a certain point of life. And I, I think I said it was something like in the forties, I said, and, and if, if you want to pay into social security and you want to, and, and we will keep our promise, the United States government should keep its promise. We'll keep our promise. However, if you would like to opt out and try something different, well, then if you're 40 years old, you still got to pay 75% of social security, but you can keep 25% back and put into what you want. If you're 30 years old, 50, 50, if you're 20 years old, 75, 25, right? That was all to eventually we get to the point where you can completely opt out altogether if you want to. But nope, I, I was a bad, evil, mean guy. And here's what I here's what I want people to understand when as we look at the resolution, right? Because that's what we're addressing right now, this high school debate resolution. Expanding Social Security. They're arguing for expanding Social Security. That means either increasing the amount of money you're getting, increasing the number of people that are eligible, or decreasing the age for which eligibility comes into effect. I'd like to know how they think they will do that because when Social Security was implemented, the birth rate was much higher. They could make a better argument for, oh, we're going to be able to, you know, people are dying younger and the birth rate is booming. And then all of a sudden, you know, they start aborting all their babies and you've got 60 million less people in the workforce to prop up all the people that aborted their babies. Over the last 50 years. Right. Unfortunately, though, even if even if abortion had never become a thing, Mm -hmm. 
it still would have been an unsustainable. Well, and program. the birth rate went down anyway. And no. you've got a, a couple of generations of people now that think they shouldn't have to work and that they don't want to be wage slaves well, here, and that they should be able to live basically from, you know, cradle to grave on social security. Well, he, so that's absolutely correct. The other thing to keep in mind here is the same party that actually encourages reducing the birth rate is the same party that's absolutely dependent upon it for social security to remain solvent. Like without without an increased birth rate, social security fails by necessity. It's like they, they set up one policy in order to win votes in one universe. And then they've implemented other policies in order to save the planet or to encourage the abortion industry or whatever else. And, and now they're trying to make up for it with immigration. And, and it, you're looking at this going, this is one of the problems. Like if you, if you look at this from before you ever get into the problems with how social security works, here's the question that I would encourage these high school or students that are actually going to go against this resolution. I, I would first, again, start with the moral premise. Don't accept the presupposition that expanding social security is a moral good. And now we just got to figure out how to do it. The first question that you should ask is, is the federal government actually good at managing retirement? Is it appropriate for the federal government to require you by law to have an investment account or to have a retirement account with the government? Is that moral? No. I don't think it is. Right? The, the gov if the federal government wants to take the position that, well, we need to provide for some sort of basic level of assistance for people in, in their elderly years that didn't prepare for it, Singapore actually has a plan where Singapore says, okay, look, you have to plan for your retirement. We're not going to let you die on the streets. You got to plan for your retirement, but you get to choose what retirement plan you want to, you want to, you know, do within, I think it's a certain degree of options or whatnot. And then you can pay into that. Well, again, the federal government of the United States has said, no, 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 the federal government will be responsible for managing social security and you will be required by law to contribute to it. And then, oh, by the way, regardless of how much you contribute to it, if you, let's say you contribute to social security all your life and you die two days after you're eligible for social security. Oh, well did, did all of that interest and all of that stuff that accrued, does that now go to your, your wife or your children? Absolutely not. That's I mean, why it, I said if, if, if you had been allowed to take that money that, so for example, if you, um, if you had been allowed to, or not even allowed if, if for, for the socialists that still demand control, look at the, look at the, the, um, Australia model, or the Singapore model, where it's still a mandatory system, but guess what? It's not a mandatory government-run system. Yeah. Instead, you're required to put aside money for retirement. But the way that they do it, they, they have something called the super fund, uh, um, uh, super fund in Australia, and I can't remember what they call it in Singapore. But point is, is that you have to, you're not allowed to keep the money until you retire, but you put it into an investment fund. Yeah, and. And I, I mean, George Bush tried to do something similar to this and he was just dragged oh, through the mud for it. For oh, it. you're, you're going to lose it all in the stock market over a lifetime of working. There's so, for example, there's actually never been ever in the history of the United States of, of, of stock markets existing in the United States. There has never been a 40 year period where the market has uh, resulted in negative returns. Mm -hmm over a 40 year period, you, you could end that 40 year period at the bottom of the great depression. And yet it's still higher than 40 years before. Yeah. And, and so this idea that, that like, oh, well, you know, all these people are going to lose money. No, over again, over a lifetime of working, that is way better than the current social security system that we have. And the reason why is exactly what you just brought up that what if you die before you can collect it? Or what if you die yeah. shortly after you can collect it? Well, guess what? In, an, in the normal world, if you were allowed to invest that money 
That's your money that you can hand off to your heirs. You can hand off to your spouse or your children. And you can set them up for success to the point that they won't need a retirement when they get older because they'll already become wealthier. We're, you know what we're doing is we're pissing away money yeah. that, that we're allowing the federal government to collect and then spend. And this is another thing that I think, I, I think that even some people on the left recognize as a problem, which is that the federal government has raided the Social Security Fund repeatedly. So there's not even any money to begin with anyway. We all know that it's going to start running out of funds in the 2030s. So- when you point this out, though, and you say the solution should be less government control, if you still want to if you're still absolutely terrified of old people living on the streets and not being able to take care of themselves in retirement, fine, you still make it mandatory like it currently is. But give people the option to invest that money somewhere else other than with the federal government yeah. where you don't even get any sort of market return. You barely even get an inflation adjusted return. Yeah, so I the, I think people should be arguing from a moral standpoint that this is uh, again once again it's a coercive uh, and violent way to try to address the problem, and secondly, it's probably the least effective, least efficient way to solve the problem. And the way you know that is because if the private sector operated the same way, the same federal government running this program would prosecute them and excoriate them in the press. Elizabeth Warren would be the first person out there talking about this horrible robber baron that had stole wealth from millions of people. And yet when the federal government is doing it in the form of social security, and then they just say, well, but because of MMT and because of taxing authority, then it, it's okay if we do it. No, it, it's, it's a horrible program, both morally and economically. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm tired of pretending that it's not. So what about the people that aren't retired? I know that that's the next point that you wanted to get to, which is like providing for a basic income. So, yeah, so that's, is, I mean, that's everything from like proposals that don't even exist yet, like a UBI. To so let, let's, let's read the resolution again for anybody that's just come on. All right. The, again, the, the resolution that we're debating right now is resolved. The United States federal government should substantially increase fiscal redistribution in the United States by adopting a federal jobs guarantee, expanding social security and, or providing a basic income. And so what we've done is we've explained first and foremost, the moral issues with all of these positions. Then we've explained the practical, practical economic issues of all of these positions. And now we're on our final one, which is providing a basic income. Now, a lot of the concepts of, of what they call UBI or universal basic income, uh, some of it was actually put forward and articulated by conservatives. Milton Friedman used to talk about the UBI as a, as a beneficiary replacement of the welfare state. And so here was Milton Friedman's argument, essentially. It was a universal basic income, which is to say that the federal government will ensure that everybody receives, you know, what, $1,500 a month, right? You know, something like a social security check, but just for existing. Everybody will receive that, but we get rid of all the welfare programs. There's, there's no more food stamps. There's no more WIC. There's no more assistance. There's no more any of this. It's just here's some income. This is going to help provide for the basic necessities of life. And now the federal government is no longer obligated to provide any of these programs. And the reason why I brought this up is because for the federal government to actually run a program, it is actually problematic because of the massive amounts of overhead, fraud, waste, and abuse that's usually associated with running the programs themselves. And then the programs develop a life of their own to where now, even if the program isn't producing the, the desired results, it still justifies its own existence and, and inevitably argues for more funds, more authority, more people, et cetera. So Friedman said, if you're going to do something, then get rid of all of this and just have a universal basic income. Here's the problem. Politically, that's untenable. If you get a universal basic income, you will get it in conjunction with all of the federal programs, and it will just be one more massive expenditure on behalf of the federal government. Now, why is that? 
Well, because the programs are at least supposed to be tied to some something specific or tangible like, again, EBT. So if I get my EBT card and I go to the grocery store, I'm providing, you know, I'm, I'm now getting food as a result of this government program and the people that monitor that government program ensure that it's, are supposed to ensure that it's operated in that manner. And so therefore it's supposed to prevent fraud, waste and abuse. Whereas if I just hand you $1,500 a month, or let's say, let's say adjusted for inflation, it's $2,000 a month. We're going to give every, you know, American at a certain amount, $2,000 a month. That's just your money. Well, what happens if they go out and they spend it all on drugs? What happens if they go out and spend it all on alcohol? Well, under a UBI only system, the answer is, okay, sorry. There's maybe you can go to a charity. You can look for help. You can go to a church, look for help. You can go, you know, if the locality wants to do something, they can do something, but the federal government's obligation has been met. We're not doing anything else. Question for you. What products or services do you think would adjust in price because of UBI's implementation, such as food or housing? Like would anything in the marketplace, the prices change because of it? Well, yeah. And, and so what would, what would actually happen is if you had a lot more people, I mean, I, I don't know to what degree, so I don't want to predict that, but I want to say this, the amount of taxing that would be required to actually implement a UBI would be pretty significant. And then what you would be doing is you'd be taking a bunch of wealth from people that had earned that wealth for particular purposes, and you'd be transferring it to people that hadn't earned that wealth in order for them to spend on their priorities. Now, some people, which is kind of like the, the poster child for what the left likes to talk about, it's the single mom working two jobs to, to make ends meet, right? That's, that's their favorite person they like to uphold is, oh, this is who the program is for. Okay, but that's not who the program is for. The program is for anybody below a certain income level. So they're all going to get it. So the person that's over here just smoking pot with his buddies and his bait, that person also gets it, right? The, the person that's over here that's making a whole host of really, really bad decisions for their lives, they also get it. And so the reason why the left oftentimes I think prefers the government programs, and I'm, I'm going to be as generous as I can to this, this ideology, is the government programs are set up in order to minimize the fraud, waste, and abuse, so instead of just giving a homeless person, you know, money and saying, here you go, when we know that there's a high degree of probability for a certain degree of the homeless population and then go spend it on alcohol or drugs and potentially kill themselves, we're going to try to get them medical assistance or we're going to try to get them housing or whatnot. And so that's the idea. It's like this person is not capable of wisely spending the $2,000 we're going to give them. So we're going to put government bureaucrats in charge of making sure that they spend it wisely. And have you now removed the need for that individual to make better decisions? Well, yeah, arguably the, the idea is, is that again, Friedman's argument is that the government bureaucracy has perverse incentives is too big, is too expensive. And we actually get better bang for a buck. If we just gave the money directly to people, the left wing argument is if you give the money directly to some people that are actually going to waste it or spend it on things that would be detrimental to them. And so that doesn't work either. And, and inevitably what would happen is that because there would be a certain percentage of people that would use that money unwisely and then would go in and need medical assistance or, you know, um, need something else. The question would be is, okay, who provides it now? And, and, and we live in a, we live in a society that quite frankly, people are not willing to accept dude, it's your problem. It's not society's problem. Um, and that has, what people need to understand is that has a perverse income all, all its own. And so the, the question that I would ask here is that if you're going to, when they say and or, this is an interesting question in the resolution, if it's or provide a basic income, my question is going to be, okay, great, then are you willing to accept the fact that once the federal government has expanded and provided that UBI, its obligations are met, 
Or are you then going to make the argument, well, we're going to provide the UBI, and for all the people that use the UBI in an inappropriate way, we're going to provide additional programs on top of that, which are going to cost even more money in order to support that. The question is, when does it end? Because once again, the only way to provide a universal basic income is to take money from people that have earned it and give it to people that have not earned it. Or print it. Yeah, or print oh, it. Oh, that which, gets us which, to our last... Our oh, sorry, last point. No, no, yeah. the, the MMT, the last point. This isn't stated in the in the resolution, yeah. but we increasingly have seen that that is used as the justification for for the question of so remember when I said earlier in this podcast that the, the a lot of conservatives will just operate within the framework that the left points out. And so the left will frame, you know, robbery as compassion, and conservatives will simply argue against robbery from a utilitarian perspective rather than a perspective of justified moral outrage. Yeah. Well, one of the things that conservatives will bring up is a lot of times they'll say, we don't have the money for this. Yeah. Well, increasingly people on the left supposedly have an answer to that, which is we don't, we, we do have the money for this. This is the richest nation in the world. We can print the money. We have a monopoly on our own currency. The dollar is the world's reserve currency and we're the economic and military superpower. We can print the money. And they, in fact, they can point to, I mean, really anything post-1971, but they can especially point to all the quantitative easing that was done after uh, 2008 as an example of, see, we managed to lift ourselves out of the Great Recession and the Great Financial Crisis because Ben Bernanke flipped the money printers on yeah. and they, you know, <laughs> under Obama Gilbert. and Bernanke, they saved us from, you know, the, the recession turning into a depression. And we just need to be able to do the same thing to fund these critical programs that will make people's lives better. It will literally pay for itself. I mean, people have written whole books on this and, and increasingly politicians have every incentive to adopt MMT because they have every incentive to spend money. We talked about this, I think, in the previous podcast when it came to the problems with democracy and the perverse incentives that it provides. And so even though this isn't stated in the resolution, I would argue that it's actually in many ways implicitly stated in the resolution in terms of answering the question of how do you plan to pay for these things? Yeah, I want to I want to get to I want to get to a couple of comments that we're seeing in the chat because it's going well. Brian, Brian Betts, who, who is on the left in our chat, and I really appreciate his, his input on these. He goes, eliminate all welfare, eliminate all food steps, keep only disability, then yes, 100% of the government obligation is met. And then he goes on to say, I have an answer. It costs less than the U.S. military budget to give everyone under the poverty level 2K a month. So I, I would say to Brian, like, Brian, if, if that was something that you could convince all of the people on the ideological left to go with, or let's just say a significant majority I would certainly be willing to go with that. Not because I think that UBI is is inherently the most moral approach, but I, I do agree that I think it would be overall much better than the current welfare state that we have. I think would actually I think the perverse incentives currently existing within the welfare state would would be much better or would be largely removed by a UBI. Here's the part that I don't agree with you on. I said one. I have an answer. It costs less than the U.S. military budget to give anyone under the poverty level 2K a month. The problem is, is that once you have everyone under the poverty level, here's what inevitably happens within political culture is that they will try to expand who qualifies for that. So even if you set the poverty level at a certain amount right now, well, obviously, let's say it's adjusted for inflation. Well, when all of a sudden inflation jumps 8%, that increases the amount of expenditure going into it pretty significantly. Not only that, but I guarantee you when you have someone that is under the poverty amount by $200, 
there's going to be an argument made by a politician somewhere saying that, well, yes, but there's special considerations here. And then all of a sudden what you're going to get is all these little dispensations where it's like below the poverty level plus this. Now, I know you included disability in that as well, but I'm, I'm telling you, they will expand the definition for qualifying. They will expand the definition for disability because there's a huge political incentive to do so. And there, and there will be incredibly compelling stories on why, why would you deny this person who's just $1,000 under the poverty level? They'll call it a loophole. We need to close the loophole. Yeah. That's exactly what they'll do. And, and so that's what will end up happening. And so even if, even if I could work with someone like Brian and say, all right, Brian, we're going to sit down and we're going to, we're going to hammer this out. And you know, it may not be everything you want. It may not be everything I want, but we both agree this goes in a positive direction. And so we're going to implement it. I, I am telling you <laughs> serving in a state legislature w- with, you know, 48 Democrats in, in a, you know, a hundred person body. I don't think I could convince one of them to adopt the UBI as you suggested. I don't think I could convince one of them, Brian. I don't think you could convince one of them. Now it, it, I hope I am wrong. I, I genuinely hope I am wrong, but that has been my experience over the last eight years in a state legislative body that if you passed a UBI, you would, instantly get the UBI and all of the other welfare programs. They wouldn't, they might replace one or two, but nothing of real substance. And over time they would fight for those other ones to come back and they would fight for more people to be able to be qualified under the UBI. And that's why I have a hard time trusting it. The only way that I could, I could see you setting something like that up is with, you know, written into the code that you would require a two thirds majority to bring back other things or whatnot. And I just don't see that happening, but let, let's go on to what Christian said. I, I didn't want to I didn't mean to trail off too much. Oh, here. no, no, no. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's really relevant, but the, the MMT proposal, I mean, we've talked about this before. MMT is modern monetary theory. Yeah. And I've joked before that that is literally money printer go burr. Yeah. The, the, the more technical <laughs> term that they use is quantitative easing yeah. and quantitative easing again is money printer go burr. But, but it's, if you want to get a little bit more technical, what it is, is all right. So you have an economic crash, Right. The way that the, the traditional Keynesian approach under QE to address this is the Federal Reserve prints money because it has the power to create money out of thin air. It, I mean, Congress literally gave it that authority to do so because we don't have uh, the dollar tied to anything. It's a fiat currency. So the Federal Reserve will print the money. And then in order to prop up the economy or to boost aggregate demand or um, uh, I- increase asset prices, um, because they want to avoid a credit crunch, which is a, a credit crunch is basically a drop in asset prices, right? And and it, it can lead to a ton of bankruptcies and, and everything. I mean, basically, the Great Depression was a credit crunch, right? Yeah. And 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 that is radically different than like Weimar Germany, which was a hyperinflation period. Still, both of them are economic crashes, but they you know one ends in fire and one ends in ice, right? Um, but but under QE, what, what the way that it works is is that the the central bank prints money and then uses that money to then either buy treasury bonds to give Congress the ability to spend money on something, or well usually it'll be and slash or it'll use that money to then buy assets. So for example, it will buy things like mortgage mortgage backed securities. What it did in 2020 was was like outrageous, uh, unprecedented in the sense that it was starting to buy. Um, it was starting to buy things like corporate bonds and stuff like that. It, it was basically not just becoming the um, the lender of last resort. It was actually becoming the buyer of last resort in order to prop up the stock market. And I remember one of our older episodes that we recorded, I think at the very end of last year, 
I read off a letter from Ben Bernanke that he wrote in, I believe, 2011. And he said in that letter, he was outlining his proposal for QE. This was around the time that they were doing, I think it was, they were wrapping up QE1 and I think they were about to do QE2. I might've gotten that wrong. It might've been QE1. But the point is, is that he, he was writing this letter and he said, he was outlining this proposal for QE. And he said that higher asset prices will, will basically give people more money. It was a form of trickle down economics actually, mm -hmm. because he, he argued that higher asset prices will, will put more money in the pockets of investors who will then have that money to then spend on things in order to boost the economy. Their, their portfolios will go up and the wealth effect will take place, right? When people's portfolios go up, they feel richer. And so then they spend more money. And so he thought that that what you do is you get these people who have these massive portfolios yeah. that were massively down from 2008. All that you do is you increase asset prices, you drive stock prices up, you drive real estate prices up. And then these people that have these assets will then spend more money, either investing in their businesses that they own shares of, or they'll just cash out that money and then they'll go spend it in the regular economy or they'll hire more workers. They'll do something to, to boost the economy. And so he made the argument that, that quantitative easing, which is printing money out of thin air and then injecting it into the stock market or the real estate market is a way that you will create economic growth. It will create what he called a virtuous cycle. And it's not just that because the MMT side is actually more than just quantitative easing because quantitative easing is mostly on the private sector side. The MMT side would argue that actually you can fund you 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 don't um you can't just um or you you won't have to just settle with increasing asset prices. You can actually give Congress money too, not just Wall Street because if you print the money, you can buy the treasury bonds that Congress issues in order to to take on debt for them to you know spend it on gender programs in pakistan <laughs> they and then suddenly you can drive down interest rates by doing that because guess what if i'm the ind investor and i'm loaning the federal government money i expect a return on that money which means i expect interest paid on my bond that i buy from the federal government but the Federal Reserve doesn't need to be paid back anything because they print the money. And so they can buy treasury bonds at any price, even if it results in effectively, a, because there's an inverse relationship between bonds and interest rates, right? Even if it re results in effectively zero interest, I need the interest as an individual investor, but Jerome Powell doesn't. Yeah. And so if they buy enough treasury bonds, they can drive down the interest rate, which also they, they, they would argue creates a boom cycle. And so- the MMT theorists basically think that they have found an infinite money cheat code to give Congress the ability to fund anything they want, as long as they're spending it on useful things that they would argue actually boost the economy and create demand. If they're if they're spending the money and then putting it in a big pile and then pouring gasoline on it and lighting it on fire, MMT economists would say that's a bad thing. But if they're spending that money on we need new roads and bridges yeah. and well, the, the, welfare programs, they would say that's a positive thing. And and here's the part that I don't understand: it's it's the arrogance of it. it. It's the arrogance of believing that what you're doing is, well, because we did something constructive, what makes it constructive? Well, because we decided it was constructive. <laughs> like, no, it, the, the way you get an economy to function at, at, at maximum productivity is when free people are able to make decisions based off of the products and services they want. And prices are allowed to play what we call a coordinating function within the economy. 
this is another thing that's that's pretty fascinating if people just think about it for a second, right? It's this idea that this really is. Pe- people have this idea that prices are something that companies decide, right? I've decided that the pencil is a dollar. I've decided that the orange is seventy-five cent. No, that's that's not how with it. It's not that arbitrary. When when you go into the store and you buy and, and you're looking for fruit and maybe you want oranges, maybe that's your preference, but you wouldn't mind strawberries. And then all of a sudden you realize that the oranges are twice as expensive. Your mindset might be this greedy company is charging me twice as much for oranges. When in reality, no, what, what happened was is that there was a huge crop failure in Southern California. And now there's fewer oranges, but just as much demand as there was before. So you've got the same amount of demand for half the oranges. Well, the prices go up. Now, in some industries, this sends a signal back that, oh, I can get a lot of money for planting oranges right now. Now, you might not do it for something like oranges because there's such a long life cycle. But when it comes to maybe you have a manufacturing company and you produce, you know, whatever, and and those same instruments that you have for production can actually be used in another field. Well, now all of a sudden you recognize that, wow, there's a there's a really high price point for this particular field. I'm going to take some of my, I'm going to take some of my capital. I'm going to take some of my projects and some of my workers, and I'm going to start producing that right away because I can yield a profit for that. Well, what happens? Well, now all of a sudden prices go down because more people are competing to put the things that people want back into the marketplace. So the price without anybody knowing, without anybody knowing specifically what was going on at a particular graphite mine or what somebody was knowing was going on with a particular shipping industry. All they know is this price went up and this price went down. So I bought this or I I paid more for this and I didn't like it, but I really needed it. Well, now the signal has been sent to the economy. Hey, produce more of this because the prices are high. You're going to make more profit. All right. So I produce it. And then as soon as I produce it, prices go down. So the consumer is better off. The company that was able to adapt to the crisis is better off. And all that was solved by price changes. Can you tell, um, share the hotel analogy? Thomas Sowell talks about this when, when we have this whole conversation of price gouging, and this is going to feed directly into the MMT as well. But, but Thomas Sowell points out that if you, when you have a natural disaster, Right. And then all the people have to flee their homes. And so now they've driven 50 miles away from the storm or whatever it is, and they have to go get a hotel. And the hotel typically on the off season is, say, 100 bucks a night. But now it's $250 a night. And now politicians are demanding this is price gouging. We need anti price gouging laws. How dare you do this? Okay. Think about what just happened. The demand for a room used to be pretty low. Well, now there's a hurricane. People have moved, and all of a sudden the demand for the room is incredibly high. Well, when the demand increases, but the supply remains the same or drops, prices go up. Now you can look at that as, well, this is horrible and they're just exploiting me. But I want you to think about it from another perspective. And this is something that Sol brings up. He goes, if you would have gone and the hotel price would have remained the same, if the hotel price wouldn't have taken into account that there was now hundreds of people that wanted or thousands of people that wanted a hotel room instead of hundreds, you might've bought you might have uh, got one hotel room for you and your wife and one hotel room for your kids. Okay, but but now with the increased cost, you're like, yeah, I'm not getting two rooms. We're going to all pile into one room. Well, what what just happened? Well, now another room is made available for another family that wouldn't have been available if you would have kept the price at $100. So it, it's important to understand that that's the coordinating function that prices play is without us having to know everything that's going on in the economy, we know what we value, we know what we want, we know what the alternatives are, and then we can make the best decision based off of our preferences and our available funds. 
But if the government's constantly coming in and manipulating that, that's a problem. What ends up happening is it's not that, oh, goody, goody, we have a lower price for hotel rooms. Okay, but now you got a bunch of families sleeping in their car outside. Is that better? Did, did that actually serve a, a more nobler purpose? Hey, politicians, y'all get to pack yourself. We passed anti-price gouging laws, and now more people had to sleep in their cars in the middle of the storm. Slow clap. Yep. If they do that, though, they're going to just come back with like a regulation that says that, you know, only this per person. I mean, well, they, they don't they don't recognize that, oh, this didn't work. Instead, they just go, oh, this law created this issue. Let's go ahead and make another law to create another issue. Well, and, and the problem, too, is that when we look at and so Brian asked the question, right, what do we do when they raise the price excessively and never lower it? During the pandemic, the excuse for cost changes was to keep profitable, yet the stock market showed them making record profits. Brian, I think there's a couple of things that we have to take into consideration here. One, in a free market, their ability to just raise prices exponentially whenever they want and to whatever extent they want doesn't exist because other people will enter the marketplace in order to compete with them unless the government is providing them special privileges, protections, subsidies, regulatory capture to where now all of a sudden the ability to compete with them becomes impossible. So in a free market where other people can enter the marketplace quickly and effectively in order to meet a demand, their excuse to we're just going to excessively raise prices because we feel like making excess profits doesn't hold water. The other thing that's problematic is a lot of times when they look at people like with, you know, price gouging, especially within the oil industry and things like that, they're not taking into account that when, when, when a company buys oil, for instance, I don't get to just buy oil based off of what the current market price is. I have to buy the oil based off of what I think the future market price is going to be so that I can restock. So when I, I buy it at this price, but when I sell it, I am selling it not based off of what I bought it for. I'm selling it based off of what it's going to cost me to restock. And you're so, guessing. So if you're, if you're just looking at like quarterly reports, oh my gosh, they made a huge profit at this particular time. Okay, but is that profit now eaten up? essentially by, you know, excess costs on the marketplace. The other thing to keep in mind here when we talk about excess profits, yeah, when the government prints out $3 trillion. Yeah, that was the big And the point. vast majority of it. And look, Brian, to your point, Trump encouraged the printing of the $3 trillion. I'm not saying that, you know, Republicans don't bear any blame for this. But when you print out $3 trillion and that $3 trillion enters the economy in such a way to where it naturally benefits banks and large corporations that have access to the money first, either through direct government subsidies or through people that are loaning it, well then, yeah, they're going to have huge profits at the expense of everybody else. But the solution is not to come in and say, and this is why we need to get these companies. The solution is don't print the money in an attempt to manipulate the economy. Yeah, th th this gets to the MMT point. I, because when, when Brian says that during the pandemic, the excuse for cost changes was to keep, uh, keep profitable, yet the stock market showed them making record profit. So so for I, what, what I think he's hinting at here, um, it might have not been, been worded in a way that, that everybody could, could understand. So Brian, correct me if, if you mean something else. But what I believe that Brian is getting at, at there is that at the height of the pandemic, after March and April, the stock market then rallied and then hit new highs. And it continued to do so until, I think, December 2021. And then when the Federal Reserve started to, to slow down the money printing and started raising interest rates last year, then the market crashed in 2022. But up until December 2021, like the Nasdaq 100 was at like an all-time high. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people were wondering, wait, we're in the middle of a pandemic. The economy was shut down. 
you know, unemployment skyrocketed. There were all these things, you know, supply chains were a disaster. Like, like there were all these things going wrong. And yet the stock market was at an all time high. How could that be? And the reason that it was is because eventually the, people have this idea that the stock market is the economy. Yeah. And that's actually not true at all. In fact, <laughs> one of the things that they joke about um, is that, you know, how do you, how do you uh, get your stock to go to the moon in 2023? Step one, announce you're going into bankruptcy. <laughs> like, I, I, I mean, the point is, is that the people, the stock market has become very disconnected from the actual economy. Heavily and speculative. The reason it's become so disconnected and it's, it's resulted in a massive bubble, even today, it's still in a bubble, even after last year's crash, is because so much money, so much money was printed in such a short amount of time. And that money was not just stimmy checks. Yeah. That was a fraction of the money was the, the thousand, $2,000 checks that they were handing out to people. The vast majority of that money went into the stock market and the real estate market, which is how you get a situation where mortgage rates are north of 7% and yet real estate prices are at an all time high. Yeah. Usually when mortgage rates go up, the price of homes in real estate has to drop to compensate for the higher interest rates, but that did not happen. And the reason why is because money flooded the system, mostly the real estate and stock market, and drove the asset prices up. It's exactly what Ben Bernanke wrote about all those years ago in yeah. 2011, except the problem is, is that he thought that would be a good thing. No, we now know that massively increasing asset prices artificially through the use of the money printer and through the use of the Federal Reserve buying things like mortgage-backed securities or buying corporate bonds or throwing money to Congress to then spend on corporate welfare, which is what most of the COVID bailout stuff was. Yeah. Thomas Massey pointed out that this is the largest transfer of wealth in history, and they bribed us with stimulus checks while at the same time giving us massive inflation that offset the stimulus checks and funneling most of that money to Silicon Valley and Wall Street. We, but we talk about we talk about Wall Street and we talk about the stock market, but like I'd like to see a breakdown of which actual companies were making all that profit during that time and where big pharma plays into I, I, it. But again, though, pro I, 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 what I'm trying to stress here in the context of Brian's quote is everybody talks about profit. And what I was trying to argue is asset prices are disconnected from profit. Yeah. For example, DoorDash, company that has never made a cent in their existence. Never made a profit. Never made a profit. And they have a market cap in the tens of billions of dollars. How on earth does a company that loses regularly on a quarterly basis a billion dollars a quarter have a market cap that is higher than actual profitable companies that generate free cash flow? Yeah. How on earth is that the case? Well, it's because they have access to very easy and cheap credit yeah. that is funded through the money printing. All of these, um, and we've talked about this before when we did um, our Silicon Valley bank collapse. So many of these like Silicon Valley startup companies get funded by venture capitalists. And where did the money from that come from? Came from the money printer. Yeah. This well, is how you get these zombie companies th that don't make any money, but are worth tens of billions of dollars. This is also another reason why eventually BlackRock's going to be in a lot of trouble because it, it's, it's easy to engage in some of the things that BlackRock has done when the Federal Reserve is printing out money and you're getting first crack at a lot of it. Um, Sir Grog says, super chat. I freaking love you guys. Even if my brain cell can or brain can't absorb what you're saying sometimes. Well, thank you very much, Sir Grog. I appreciate it. Uh, I also want to address some Rocky here. Price gouging is disgusting. It's profiteering, pure and simple. I'm not religious at all, but I remember a guy named Jesus who had issues with usurers and profiteers. I will say this. Um, I am religious and I will say that my problem is this. We have to clearly define what price gouging is. 
I mean, I, I can, yes, if you are sitting there and you've got a, uh, a family in front of you who are starving to death and you're trying to charge them, you know, a thousand dollars for a piece of bread, that's morally reprehensible. And that's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about the problem is, is that when prices fluctuate in order to, um, correspond with what's actually happening in the economy, especially if it's, if it's in relation to like a disaster, a lot of times the government calls that price gouging in a way that doesn't actually help anybody. And they actually pass laws which don't help anybody. I'll give you an example of this. Somebody decided um, to, I think they went into like Tennessee to a Lowe's in Tennessee or Home Depot. They bought a bunch of generators for like 500 bucks. And then they drove down to Louisiana during a, a storm and they were selling them, I think for like $2,000. And they sold out right away. Do you know what the government did? They came in, they confiscated the generators, they fined him, and then I think the generators just stayed in a warehouse somewhere. Did did that, uh, look? <laughs> this dude was not motivated. I, I will tell you this much: the vast majority of the American population was not motivated in any way, shape, or form to stop what they were doing, go to their local Home Depot, buy up twenty generators, go down there and sell them to people that actually needed them. Almost nobody was motivated to go down there and do that for free. But this guy did it. Now, you might say, well, you know, he charged too much. Okay, they all sold out. So clearly somebody felt that what he'd done, because it was a voluntary transaction, nobody was compelled to buy them. You can look at that and say, well, that was mean. Well, here's going to be my question to you. Did you go down and sell them for market price? If the answer is no, I would argue that you can be mad at this guy all you want, but he actually provided a need that was there. And I don't think he should be punished for that. The other thing too is when it comes to, to profit, there's nothing wrong with profit. The scripture has no problem with profit whatsoever. Profit is merely an indication that you're actually running your business well. Now, if you are engaging in, in such a way to where you're engaging in unethical or illegal activities in order to make a profit, then yeah, that's bad. But it's not the profit that's bad. It's the unethical behavior or illegal activity. And so what we want to make sure that people understand is that there's a, there's a huge difference from someone deliberately exploiting someone in absolute dire need um, versus someone that is simply organizing their assets in a way that makes sense based off of increased demand, right? So that's, I think that's a, an important distinction that needs to be made. All right. Um, we're going to, we had just, I think one more thing that we're going to cover. And then if anybody's got any questions, feel free to ask, but uh, I want to, I want to kind of wrap up this argument and hopefully we did a good job for, for Roger on this. We really appreciate him bringing the, uh, the topic to us. So once again, I'm going to repeat this, the resolution resolved the United States federal government should substantially increase fiscal redistribution in the United States by adopting a federal jobs guarantee, expanding social security and, or providing a basic income. The way I think we at this table would probably break this down is first and foremost, challenge the underlying presupposition. Don't just automatically assume that of course the federal government should be doing these sorts of things. Start to ask questions with, again, Again, what do you mean by fiscal redistribution? And then point out what you mean is the coercive confiscating of someone's money in order to redistribute to somebody else. You're taking money from someone that earned it in order to give it to somebody that didn't earn it. This is not the same thing as us all contributing into you know taxes and then getting a road or all contributing to taxes and getting the benefit of a fire department or a police department. This is very different. This is I take from you and I give to you. And the question that you have to ask with a lot of these federal programs is what constitutes, what, what qualifies 
um, you to have your money taken and what qualifies you to receive the money that's been confiscated. And a lot of times people will like to bring out these, these incidents or, or this picture of who they hope is being helped. And the person they hope that is being helped is always the incredibly sympathetic single mother, the incredibly sympathetic guy that just lost his job because he got hurt on the job or something like that. And all of us can agree that those are sympathetic people that we can and should want to help. The problem is, is the way that a lot of these federal redistribution programs are set up is there's two criteria. You got, a, you got more money, it gets taken. You got less money, it gets given. And then we never ask the important questions of why do you have more money and why do you have less? Because if you have more money because you've been working incredibly hard to earn it, I've just disincentivized you. If the reason why you have less money is because you got hurt at the factory, we may want to voluntarily help you. But if the reason why you have less money is because you're lazy and you don't do anything or you make horrible decisions, then now what I just did was subsidize your bad decisions with the money that I took from somebody that was making good decisions. So I've incentivized the bad decisions and I've disincentivized the good ones. That sound like a good federal redistribution program? I don't think so. You can attack this from the moral question long before you ever get to the problems with so many of these federal programs, which, which fail to work. The next one is adopting a federal jobs guarantee. Again, the underlying premise is, is well, you don't have a job. Great. The federal government will provide one. How, how are they going to provide one? The only way that the federal government can provide, can guarantee you a job when you're not getting one in the private sector is by taking money out of the private sector, the very money that would have probably been used in order to create goods, services, create a company, expand a company in order to provide more jobs. We're not going to take that away from these people over here that can only be successful in the economy by actually providing you products and services that you want. And now we're going to give it to a government program, which is going to provide work. And there's a big difference between a job right? And make work. And all of us have experienced this. I, I can go pay someone to stand and lean on a shovel. That doesn't mean that's a good use of resources. And so once again, before we ever get to the practical issues with doing this, we have to address the moral issue. The moral issue of we're going to take money from people that have earned it. We're going to take money from people that are actually providing jobs. And we're going to give it to politicians in order to create jobs that politicians prioritize, not customers, not free people in a marketplace that can voluntarily choose to do business or not choose to do business. So again, you're not creating jobs, you're just creating work. And then you're stealing money in order to pay for those jobs. That has a moral problem right off the bat, but it also has a practical problem because once again, this goes back to the Hazlitt argument, right? There's the seen versus the unseen. Yeah, the scene is, oh, look at this civilian conservation corps. Look at this hiking trail they made. <clears throat> the unseen is you took money away from a business that needed it in order to hire more people to provide goods and services that people actually wanted a whole lot more than your hiking trail. Right? So you prioritize government priorities over the priorities of free citizens. And that creates a bunch of practical problems as well. And then it's this whole idea of, of, again, next one was expanding Social Security. We've already explained that the way that Social Security is currently operating operates as a Ponzi scheme. People might not like to hear that, but my question is, would you rather hear a hard truth so we can actually solve the problem? Or would you like a comforting lie that is going to come back to really bite you in the future? I'd prefer to go with the, I prefer to go with the hard truth. And the, the bottom line is, is that social security is currently run in a way that if a private company did the same thing, it would be considered illegal. And so you have to ask the moral question first, is it morally acceptable to tell everybody in America, we're going to take your money and then we're going to force you into this government retirement program. And then when the government retirement program is essentially unsolvent because of the way it's organized, we're not going to fix it. We're just going to expand it now. So even though we have a bunch of unfunded liabilities, 
associated with social security, even though we have far fewer people paying into it than we do taking out by comparison to 50 years ago, we're now going to expand a program that is currently unsolvent. Does that make sense? Is that going to help all the people that are now depending upon social security that are not going to get the benefit of it because the federal government can't afford to pay it. And because what they will eventually do in order to try to pay for it is they will print money. Because again, the government is not producing goods and services that you are voluntarily using within the economy. They are taking money from you ostensibly to pay for essential services that we all use. Police, fire, court system, military, roads. But instead they're doing all these other things, which they've proven to be not very good at. And now you want to expand that program that has both a moral problem and a practical problem. And then finally we get to things like a universal basic income. This is the only one on here that I can actually see some argument for, but you'll notice that part of the question was and or providing a universal basic income. So if it's or, and you're, you're honestly going to tell me that, okay, we're not getting, we're getting rid of all these other government programs. And all we're going to do is provide everybody below a certain income level, $2,000 a month in order to meet your basic necessities. And now the federal government's obligation to you is over. If you honestly want to do that, it would be a far better system than what we have now. But as I've already articulated, I don't buy it. I think if we get a universal basic income, we're going to get that. Plus we're going to get the massive welfare state that we have. The moral problem with that is that once again, what you're saying is, is I'm going to take money from people that have earned it and I'm going to give it to people that have less. I'm not going to ask any questions about why they're below the poverty line. I'm not going to ask any questions about how is this due to external things beyond your control or is it due to bad decisions that you've made? I'm now just going to subsidize the position that you're in. And oh, by the way, once you get above that position, it goes away. So what happens then? Well, now we have an, a political incentive from a practical consideration. We have a political incentive for politicians to be like, I can't believe they made just a little bit more a year and now you took this away. Or it's this family, you know, they may not fall under the poverty line, but look at the, the conditions that they're in and, you know, they deserve this as well. There's going to be a unique political incentive to expand eligibility or to come up with different, different criteria, which now makes you qualified. And the end result is, once again, you have a situation where you are taking money away from people. You are disincentivizing them from working hard. And you are incentivizing, in many cases, not in all, I'm, not, I'm by no means claiming that everybody uh, in poverty is just making horrible decisions. It's usually a temporary status in this country. It usually is. And people eventually gain skills and they grow out of it economically. But if you pad it so much to where you actually incentivize them to stay there, You've created a perverse incentive structure. So now from both a moral and a practical reason, I don't think any of these, any of these suggestions work. But if you don't start it off by actually questioning the underlying presupposition, if you go right into the data, right into the statistics, you are missing the biggest argument that you have here. So always start with the presupposition and the moral argument. And then once you've established that, move on to talking about some of the practical considerations, why it doesn't work, some of the practical examples, and what are decent alternatives to addressing these issues because this is one of the most important factors for conservatives to remember. It's not that we don't have answers to these questions. We do. But a lot of times we focus on what's wrong with the current system that we have instead of expressing how, no, actually, if you lived in a world where you could save for your retirement, but instead of giving it to politicians to manipulate, you could actually put it in the private sector. Not only would you have an asset at your retirement, which was worth far more than whatever you're going to get through a government program, not only would you have an asset that actually legally belongs to you, which you can then transfer to your wife, to your kids, to those who survive you, 
But you would have put that money not within a government program where it's being used within a Ponzi scheme system. You would have put it into the productive sector of the economy, which is fueling more business, more business ventures, more entrepreneurs, more creation of products and services. You're now providing the capital that's going to make that possible. Jobs are going to be created as a result of how you're investing that money now instead of it going to a government program and creating bureaucratic jobs. So when you look at all of this, it's not that we don't have solutions. We do. So establish the moral, question the presupposition, establish the moral argument, establish the practical argument, and then move on to providing alternatives to what they're insisting is the only way that we can possibly look at that. Because once you start to provide the alternatives, then you actually give people a direction to go, not just a direction to avoid. All right. I'm going to leave it there. I don't think, do we get any questions or anything else? I've got one actually for you. Yeah. Um, in fact, I want to read off a, a, a bit of a brief exchange between Brian and myself and a few others um, that was taking place when, when you were speaking, because I think that this will get to the heart of the question that I want to ask. Um, and he, uh, he was talking about, you know, the context of this UBI proposal. And he was like, well, just give it to, to literally everybody over 18. That's the, um, that, that, that's the way to, uh, to go. And then uh, somebody brought up an objection to, I think it was, you know, well, well, what are you going to do? Or what, I mean, I, you know, the worry, right? That some people are going to make bad decisions. So for example, if you gave everybody $2,000 a month and in, in place of all the welfare programs, some people, I mean, if I was given $2,000 a month, I, I would immediately put it into like the S&P 500 every single month or maybe Bitcoin because I, I we think that the dollar is <laughs> going to collapse yeah. or maybe buy freedom gold, right? But like, I, I, I would invest that money. Some people would spend it on hookers and blow. <laughs> Why do you have so, to bring up Hunter Biden? That's <laughs> so that's Christian's new nickname. I'm <laughs> willing to bet that over the course of 20 or 30 years, somebody putting that money into the S and P 500 or Bitcoin or real estate or whatever is going to, they're going to have a, a very different experience than the person who every single month is spending $2,000 on hooker and blow. So what's <laughs> going to happen inevitably is that some people are going to succeed and some people are going to fail. Some people are going to make terrible decisions and others are going to make pretty wise decisions. Yeah. And then some people are going to have to live with the consequences of those decisions, good or bad. And so that's one of the big objections because inevitably in 20 years or 10 years after you set up a UBI, there's going to be some politician on the left. that's going to point to the homeless drug addict who decided to destroy their lives on hooker and blow. And they're going to say, we need to help this person. We need a new program to help this person. And that's how you're going to create an, again, the cycle will begin anew, right? Well, Brian brings up that any person who made bad decisions now has the money to contribute to the economy in defense of the UBI proposal. And then he go, goes on to say, I don't care if a bomb gets free money. He can now afford to buy my product. And then somebody said, isn't that socialism? And then Brian said, no, it's not because we're not giving away the means of production. And then he went on to say, you know, it's making sure every individual can be a consumer so businesses can make more money. I was a mechanic, so I understand that if, uh, um, so I understand more than anyone that my consumer, uh, that if my uh, customers have more money, I make more money. And then I brought up Brian, the question is, where is that money going to come yes. from? It has to come from somewhere. And and then there were a lot of people that agreed with me in the comments there. But I I, I will, the, the reason that I bring up this story 
is not because I think it's really funny to talk about hookers and blow. The reason that I bring up this <laughs> That's story. That's four. We're keeping a count right now. <laughs> the reason that I bring up this story is because I think that getting to the heart of the title of today's episode, I think there is, to, you know, to some degree, Brian actually has a point. Although I don't think it's necessarily one that he might realize. He is correct when he says it is not socialism. Mm-hmm. So I want to present to you the, you know, the, the ability to, to explain to our audience the difference between when we say the word wokeonomics and, and classical socialism or Marxist-inspired yeah. socialism. And the reason that I, I think that there's an important distinction to be made there is because, first off, I think that we run risk of, of overusing the term and then diminishing its meaning. Yeah. Right. So, so if we just slap the word woke in front of anything, you know, eventually the word will lack meaning. So we need to be precise with our language, but that's just more of a political concern on the academic side and the intellectual side. I actually do think there is a difference between yes. woke inspired left-wing economics or socialism and classical Marxism or classical socialism. I, I think there's actually a very clear distinction there. And it's, it's an important distinction that needs to be made. So feel free to, to opine on, on that interaction that Brian and I and a few others no, had. Uh, but but I, I really want, want you to, to well, that, that, that is explain the, the difference between the two. That, that is always the critical question. Like we, we always talk about, oh, but if, if people had more money, they'd be able to spend more on that. would be good for business. Yes. And if you're starting the story there, that makes sense. But the problem is, is that's not where the story starts. The story starts with where did the money come from in the first place? And if, if the money started, if the money came from somewhere else and you took it and then you gave it to somebody else who didn't earn it, you, you cannot ignore the perverse incentives created in that transaction. You can't ignore that. If you've just printed it, you cannot ignore the perverse incentives with respect to the inflationary monetary policy that's taking place and how that's going to impact people. And so it's really important to start, start the story at the beginning um, not just where it makes sense to to redistribute. Like we did a react video once. I think we might do a, a redo of it where it was talking about wealth in America. And it started off by saying, here's all the wealth in America. Now let's see how it's distributed. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It, it's not like, it's not like people arrived at Jamestown and arrived at Plymouth and here was trillions of dollars. And now it's just a question of who distributes it. By the way, Brian just mentioned in the comments, but they'll both have a hell of a good time. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt, but yeah. I, I just laughed so hard at that. I couldn't, I couldn't hold it back. <laughs> so, so the issue is start, started at the right point. But, but here's the other thing I would say is that if we're looking at kind of the difference, like what makes wokeonomics difference from socialism or, um, or, you know, free market economic policy. And, and I would argue it's this socialism is the abolition of the private ownership of the means of production. And that's why when people say, Oh, the military is socialist or, you know, they, no, <laughs> socialism is, is tied to the concept of you, the, the private sector cannot own the means of production. So major capital, like you, the private sector doesn't own the company, right? They don't own the massive equipment that's in there in order to produce things, right? They, they can own their toothbrush. They can own their sweater, but they don't, they can't own that. Now, Marxist philosophy would say that once the Marxist utopia has been reached, there will be no government. There would just be such abundance and the, the people would own everything. Or it's like the people own everything. The problem is we've, we've never seen really any manifestation of that, except maybe in some very, very small anarcho-communist like communes, which usually fail after two years. But that's, that's socialism, right? Abolition of the private ownership of the means of production. Okay, so the next level down 
is that we would talk about where there's some, you know, again, private means of, of ownership, but the government is heavily involved in the process. And they're heavily involved in the process with respect to subsidizing certain businesses, taxing and regulating businesses. Um, essentially, companies may be allowed to be privately owned, but they operate under such a bulwark of government regulation, taxation, subsidy, and control that they're privately owned, but they're still heavily managed by government policy. Um, that is actually more in, in line with what we would call fascist economic policy. If you look at the way Mussolini ran the economy in Italy, if you look at the way Hitler ran the economy within Nazi Germany, even though Nazism and Italian fascism are, are different in certain respects, there was this idea that, yes, we will allow private industrialists to be able to manage certain things outside of the industries that we've determined are critical to the survival of the state, but they're only allowed to operate it if they accept what the government has prioritized is in the well-meanings of the nation, right? So that's kind of your fascist economic policy, which I, I always opine that if you look at most, if you look at what most Democrats ad, abdicate for within the United States economy, it's not so much socialism as it is fascist economic policy. The problem is whenever you say fascism, they automatically think militarism and racism. I'm not accusing them of that. I'm accusing them of wanting to micromanage the economy. Then you have those systems which are more free market oriented, right? Those are the ones where the premise, the central premise of the economy is, of course, private, you know, free people own the means of production. And of course, they produce pr products and services. And, and so how do you mitigate excess? How do you mitigate, you know, greed? Well, the way you do that is through private property rights and insisting on voluntary transaction. I can't force you to work in my factory. And I can't force you to buy my products. You, I, can only, I can only entice you to do so. And the positive incentive structure that gets set up in that is this idea that, well, the only way I can get super rich is that if I produce products and services in such quantities that people want to voluntarily buy them from me. So I only get rich if I do a really good job of serving people in the economy effectively and efficiently. All right, so socialist economic policy, uh, fascist or mixed economic policy, and then again, most economies are mixed, and then free market. So what is wokeonomics? Wokeonomics, I think for most people is they like the idea of socialism uh, for many of them. It's, it's a combination. You have some wokeonomics that will favor the you know, abolition of the private ownership and the means of production. You have other people on woke uh, economics that say, no, we'll still allow pri for private ownership, but the government's going to be heavily involved in setting the priorities for the economy. So what makes it woke? Well, you have to go back to what's the definition of woke. Well, they would probably classify it as a hypersensitivity to bigotry, sexism, racism, transphobia, things of that nature. All right. But when, when you look at almost everybody that talks about being woke and you look at how they discuss inequities within society and how to achieve equity, what you usually find is that they chalk up the disparities that you see within society. And they don't chalk that up to natural differences with respect to ability or natural differences with respect to the preferences of individuals and the choices that they make they chalk up disparity to a corrupt, bigoted system which has been put in place to benefit the oppressors at the benefit of the oppressed. But the other thing that we see within woke culture is that there is a huge category of what constitutes the oppressed, right? It's based off of race, it's based off of sex, it's based off of sexual identity. And when you look at their economic solutions, it's not just workers of the world unite under classical Marxism or socialism, it's this idea of the oppressed need to be compensated, you know, by the oppressors. And so 
now there's a, a very different economic priority system on, on who's going to get compensated and by who and for what. And so that's where you see a lot of these conversations going into reparations. That's where you see a lot of these conversations with ESG and DEI. It's the idea that we're going to set up these priorities based off of what progressives want to see as priorities within the economy and within society. And now we're going to use an economic mechanism in order to enforce that. So it's, it's not good enough that everyone has a say in the economy or that it's not good enough that everyone owns the factory. We now have to dissect the workers in that factory based off of their intersectionality points, right? How, how, okay, who's in the oppressed category? Who's in the oppressor category? Are you the oppressor category? That's going to affect your pay. You're the oppressed category. That's going to increase your pay, regardless of your ability to actually contribute economically. What's interesting about this though is, is that there's like an entire, there's entire groups of people that get forgotten in the shuffle in this because we're starting to put so much focus on whatever everybody likes to scratch their itch with. Um, and that's going to be, you know, whether or not they fall into this category or not. And so now they're going to get propped up and all of this. Um, but we're forgetting that, you know, originally a lot of these various programs were, were there for people in, in real dire situations, people with disabilities, uh, real disabilities that caused them not to be able to work. And I'm not talking about time blindness here. And I'm not talking about <laughs> people who like are sensitive to, you know, environments and, and aggressive sense. I'm talking about people missing limbs, people who have real disabilities that they were born with or that they had an accident. And, and, and so in society, we try to figure out how can we take care of these people or help these people to live their life to the very fullest they can. Um, but they get totally brushed aside in lieu of this very loud new segment of people who think that, um, you know, screw everybody else. I'm the biggest victim out there. Give me, you know, give me well, your wallet. When you, when you incentivize, when you incentivize victimhood, um, the supply is going to outstrip the demand. And so they're going to, they're going to create, um, or excuse me, the supply is not going to keep up with the demand. And so what's going to end up happening is they're going to create new categories of victimhood because that's, because that's now the mechanism within woke economics, within woke economics, right? Your mechanism for getting compensated is not based off of your contribution, your economic contribution to society. It's based off of your victim status. It's based off of your intersectionality points. So, um, if you're low down on the intersectional scale, well, then your compensation is lower. If you're higher up, then it's more significant. Well, then that creates a drive to get up to the, the high point. And now with a situation within kind of woke ideology where I can simply declare myself to be something and you are obligated to acknowledge it, it, it pays for me to get into some sort of category with a higher intersectional score. Because even if it doesn't give me monetary benefit, it gives me social credit. And, and that's, that's why, that's how I kind of define how woke economics is, is differentiated between socialist economics, fascist economics, free market economics, mixed economies, et cetera. I want to get to this uh, quarter or the, the, thank you again to Sir Grog for the, um, the super chat. Won't UBI get corrupted by the government just like social security? I, I would argue that it absolutely would. I, I don't see, I, I have a hard time seeing a category where you implement UBI on any sort of massive scale. Um, they, they've done, you can do select test cases and always come back with positive results based off of your sampling size and what you're using. The real problem becomes what happens when you try to implement it over a country of 330 million people. 
And that's the part where I, I think it is ripe for corruption uh, because there will be a political incentive to do so. It's not that the people corrupting it will think they're corrupting it. They will think they're merely expanding it to other people which are deserving of it or in need of it. Um, and that will be a way to score powerful political points because again, in a, in a, in a democratic environment with winner take all elections, you know, the, the most votes wins. And so if you can take from fewer people than you're giving to, or you can create a very, very loyal voting demographic based off of their dependency on a particular program, you can win elections and get accumulate more political power and then expand it. Um, I want to, thanks to, uh, uh, Emperor Reb for, uh, excuse me, the uh, super chat, a uh, LASIK economist I watched uh, made a good point or laissez, I'm assuming that's a laissez-faire economist. I watched made a good point. Money isn't anything. It's a medium for exchange, not ends in itself. We need debt jubilees like in the ancient times, not debt must be paid to a lender elite. I actually disagree with that. Go ahead. And the reason why is because there is no such thing as a debt jubilee, actually. Yeah. Th th this is actually something that I, I think the ancient Israelites just totally got wrong, which is the concept of a debt jubilee, because what you're doing is, is that you're actually not forgiving the debt. You're, you're making everybody pay for the debt because the people forget this. When you take on debt, somebody had to lend you the debt and then you can say, oh, well, it's the evil, mean, greedy corporation that, that lent the debt. But here's an example. Um, most pensioners for a corporation or for the government are collecting their retirement through money that's paid from this debt. So for example, one, one uh, a, a lot of people will say, well, why can't the federal government just forgive its own debt that it owes to itself? Because a lot of retired people are the ones that are receiving the checks from yeah. those, those treasury bonds. Yeah, they, so they, let, let's say that you're, you're 72 and, and you're, you're just making ends meet in retirement. You're collecting in your retirement from your little pension fund money that is being paid out from debt that was taken out to pay you the creditor. You're the creditor in that case. And so when you forgive the debt, you've now screwed over the retiree. It's not just BlackRock or, you know, Bank of America that you're screwing over. You're actually screwing, first off, you're screwing over the shareholders of those companies. And they're not just super rich people. They're ordinary people as well. Many ordinary people, especially if they're retired, they're ordinary people. Not only that, but you're not just making the debt vanish. You're requiring other people who had no part in the in in the transaction to assume the responsibility of the debt. Not only that, you've now created a, a circumstance through which interest rates will inevitably rise if you create debt jubilees because there's no, who knows there might just be a debt jubilee tomorrow. So I'm going to charge you fifty percent interest because I might not get my money back now no, they, because the government might just decree tomorrow that well I'm not required to be paid back the money that I lent you. Well, so let's address two things that he said. One is the whole, this whole concept of, of money as a medium of exchange. Um, so I would argue that, that there's a couple different ways to actually establish currency. One is to establish currency, what we call commodity currencies. That's things like gold, because, um, there's, there's about like four or five criteria that, that make for a good currency, right? Like it's got to have some sort of inherent or should have some sort of inherent value. It needs to be div divisible. It needs to be transportable. It needs to be acceptable, which is to say that people will actually accept it as a medium of exchange. And so if you have a commodity currency with something like gold or silver, what you're, you're not just transacting something that you know, has value because we say it has value. It has value because silver and gold have intrinsic value, which means it has value in and of itself, not just as money, but as jewelry or as, you know, some sort of other, you know, ornament or, or whatever else it might be. Um, 
And the reason why we use gold and silver is because it's easy to divide up and carry in, in small quantities. That's, that's why it was so popular as, as a form of currency. But when it comes to our fiat currency, which is just paper money, the only reason that has value, like people say it's the, oh, the full faith and credit of the United States. Let me tell you the reason why fiat currency has value. The U.S. dollar has value. It's because the United States government collects taxes and they will allow you to pay your taxes in U.S. Federal Reserve notes. That's why it has value as an exchange currency or as a currency, because I can pay you with it. And because all of us have to pay taxes to the, to the government, then I know that at least it has value in that sense. Right. And so that, this is kind of also in within, this is one of the points that modern monetary theorists make that are an, that is an interesting anthropological observation is that a lot of times governments create a currency. And then the reason why it has widely accepted value within the realm is because the government's going to come to you and force you to pay taxes and they will accept this. So it makes sense for the, the grocery store to accept it as well, because they're also going to have to pay taxes one day. And if they have this, the government will accept it. If that makes sense. The second part that he talks about is the debt jubilees. Now I will say this, I, I'm going to take some exception with the characterization of debt jubilees within ancient Israel, because there were, there were kind of specific use cases in which debt jubilees were used. And a lot of times it had to do with things like indentured servitude. Um, it, it had to do with, um, I think kind of more unique cases. I, I don't think that the debt jubilees within the old Testament um, would, would accurately translate to like a modern day scenario where I get like a mortgage for my house. Oh um, no, because if you did something like that, you would have a situation where uh, they would be, uh, first of all, they, every there mortgage would be, would be no a seven loan, year mortgage. <laughs> there would never be loans beyond seven years. And then on top of that, you would almost create like a black market situation where now you've got people strong arming you and making sure that you pay debts. Yeah, no one so, would ever so the, be able to afford a house with so, a seven-year well, mortgage. So the, the, argu the, the argument that I'm making is that it's important to look at the sort of debt that was taking place within that time and what they were trying. When they talk about usury, right? I, I don't think that I don't think that ancient usury laws were, were rooted in this idea that I can't loan you money in interest. You were not supposed to loan people money. It would, would be an unethical way or predatory interest or the idea of if someone loans you their, if someone gives you their coat as collateral and it's the only thing that, you know, is keeping them warm at night, you're not supposed to keep that coat from them. You're supposed to be able to give it back to them. And so again, we can make arguments all day long on, okay, well, does that create perverse incentives within a, within a, a debtor class or whatnot? And, and the argument is, is that God was setting out a specific law for how he expected his people to engage with one another. And, so I, I think there's a distinction there because you're right. You can't, if, if you set up a system where, you know, debt can be, let's also use the proper language here. Debt really can't be forgiven. It's merely transferred, right? So the best thing you can say is that I can forgive your debt to me. And then what I did was I transferred the responsibility for paying the debt from you to me. And we can call that forgiveness in a real sense because I'm the only one, I'm the only one with the moral standing in that transaction to be able to forgive your debt. When the federal government talks about forgiving college loan debt, they are not in a position to be able to do that. To Christian's point, all they're doing at that point is they're transferring the responsibility for paying the debt onto people that didn't take out the debt. And it's this a, is the thing that irritated me. When, when Biden announced this, I, I got into huge arguments with, quite frankly, I'm going to call them woke Christians, left-wing Christians. And I, I think Hamilton actually knows a few of these people that went to Liberty with Hamilton. I, I, and I got into a huge argument with them. And I'm like, 
I, I said something that, that kind of irritated them, but you know what? It, it was, I think they might've taken it out of context, but I said like, God is not immune to the laws of economics. And, and they, they got kind of mad at that because, but my, my, my point was, is that the laws of economics are what they are. And you could argue, well, you know, God's not immune to anything. Well, well, first off, if he created the entire universe, that also means that he created the economic principles that govern transactions. And for, for people to say things like, oh, well, every seven years, all debt should be forgiven. Nobody will ever be able to afford a home. Who could afford a seven-year mortgage? No one could. Only the super wealthy could. Debt jubilees are a disastrous policy proposal that would make access to credit vanish overnight. Interest rates would be 25, 30, 40% like they historically were. If you go back into ancient times, anything before the advent of modern capitalism, interest rates routinely were over 25%. Oh, routinely. If you had a situation where, where in order for you to take out any sort of loan, you had to pay 25% interest, you would have a credit crunch unlike anything that humanity has ever seen before. It would make the Great Depression look like a blip on the radar. And, and I, I pointed out that, like, it's first off, it's immoral for you to, to mandate that people like me who paid my student loans now has to carry the burden of people that didn't pay them. And for you to cloak your desire to pillage my savings under the guise of this is the Christian thing to do. Please show me the, the passages in the Bible where it says you should be able to use the state to confiscate other people's wealth at gunpoint and then pat yourself on the back for being an altruistic Christian. And I got into a massive fight with, again, I'm going to call them woke Christians that yeah. use the concept of the debt jubilee in order to justify taking Taking my money in order to fund other people's debt forgiveness when I did everything right and I worked a $35,000 job a year right out of college and stayed living with my parents as much as I didn't want to do that in order to pay off my student loan debts first. And now that I'm done paying off mine, I've now got to pay off somebody else that chose to, to not do the things that were necessary in order for them to pay off their own debt. And then they want to have the moral gall to then not just demand that, but then also say that they're the good people and that they're the moral Christians and they're just following God's commandment because they want to confiscate my money and use the government to do so. I didn't tolerate that at all. And we got into a huge fight and argument and I lost a couple of friends because of it. But quite frankly, I don't really care because <laughs> it it's it's it's. It's wrong no matter how you look at it. You yeah. can look at it from a utilitarian standpoint. You can look at it from a theological standpoint. You can look at it from an economic standpoint. You can look at it from a historical standpoint. You can look at it as an agnostic. It doesn't matter. The, the, the concept of a jet, debt jubilee applied to things like student loan forgiveness or mortgages or just the general debt with the economy, first off, would destroy the economy. It would destroy uh, loans and savings. And it would, it, 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 it would and, it's, and it's immoral. If you want a Great Depression, that's the way to do it. Look, I, I'm I'm certainly not advocating for that, and I don't think, I, I as a Christian, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a Christian position to attempt to institute elements of the law that were implemented in ancient Israel, because one, it wouldn't address what we're talking about here. The, the whole concept of debt forgiveness within the Old Testament is very, very different than what we're actually discussing right now in modern economic terms. And if we don't properly recognize that and actually take into the, the context of Near East traditions at that point, then we, you are comparing apples and oranges. It does not make sense. Now, is, is God immune to the laws of economics? What, what God is, what God is, is, is he's, he has a created order which is in line with his nature. 
Right? So he sets the rules. And I, I think what you're saying is, is that when we look at the economic principles that we're, we're taking in place, we're saying, if this, then this happens. Well, this is not a question of God being immune to it. This is a question of, we didn't create this order. This is a cause and effect relationship between these two things. I, and I so, didn't word and so, it perfectly. And so I, the, I the, idea, the idea is, is that this cause will have this effect. And it's important to understand that when we're talking about economic considerations. I, I want to get to this question right here because I, I think it's going to be a good. I think we're out of questions. I think there was one other one here real quick. Um, oh, I want to thank Chris Trapp for the uh, super chat. He says, debtor is slave to the lender. That That is one of those things where, you know, again, do I do I think there's ways that, that lending can be, you know, you know, ethical and, you know, good for both parties? Yes, I do. But I mean, you do feel it. You do feel it when you owe somebody a debt, um, when you owe the bank a debt. It, it really begs the question of, OK, who really owns this thing right now? And so it, it is incredibly careful to make sure that you're not getting into, I, I would argue, excessive debt or into a position where it's irresponsible debt. But I, I want to, um, you know, we're coming up on two hours now and I want to kind of close out with this uh, question from uh, Melissa Marie. Is it possible for us to get back to being able to support a family, own a home and a decent vehicle and have a savings and retirement savings on a single income and a stay at home homemaker parent? <coughs> yeah, I think it is. Uh, I think I think it absolutely is. Now, here's what I'm going to say with the current economy, and with the way that the government has mismanaged our economy with inflationary monetary policy, it has become more difficult. There's no question to that at all. Um, Tina and I, when I was in the military um, and we started having kids, Tina, Tina had been working outside the house when we started having kids. We had discussed this when we were engaged. This was in uh, the early 2000s. So, you know, we're not talking about ancient times here. And we're actually talking about a time when there was a massive bubble going on within the housing market. And for those of you who don't know, uh, non-commissioned officers in the army aren't exactly making bank, right? We did fine. Like we did fine. Like I, I thought my, you know, I, I was happy with my pay and whatnot, but we, we weren't making a ton of money. But we decided relatively early on that when we started having kids, we didn't want to, we needed to survive on one income. Um, that wasn't a, a mandate where it's like, all right, Tina, you're never working outside the home again. It was just, I felt it as something that I wanted to make sure that I could um, provide enough to where it would never be required. So the question is, is I'm, I'm in the military and so we're, we're making okay money. And then I get out of the military and we're making okay money, but we're also living in Northern Virginia at that point, And that's not exactly the cheapest place to live. And then we moved down here and, and I will say that there were plenty of situations where uh, we could have made, we could have been doing significantly better uh, if Tina decided to work outside the home. Uh, but then that would have raised a whole bunch of questions with respect to, you know, what, what we wanted for our children and what that would mean for having to pay for daycare and, uh, having a, you know, needing to have a second car and a second gas budget and, uh, you know, eating out more because that inevitably happens as a result. And so I, I think uh, the thing, there is one thing well, I do want to point out real quick. Yeah. We were doing okay, but technically, yeah, technically at the very beginning, when we first had Lily, we qualified for all of, yeah. all of the, um, you know, we qualified for EBT. We qualified for WIC. We qualified for all of it. We did not partake of it because we knew we could make it without it. Because I don't want to give people a false sense of, oh, well, they were always just making enough money to survive. And so they can't possibly understand what we're talking about, what we're going through. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yeah. I remember us having, I remember putting beans on 
but the thing is, is, is that you, you tighten your belt, you make different decisions, you, you cut out everything you possibly can to, uh, to try to streamline your finances as much as possible so that you know what's coming in, what's going out and that you can feed your family. And so I just wanted to say that we were not always doing well, no, I didn't say, well, I said we were doing okay, but you're right. 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 What I'm trying to say is that we did qualify for those things. We did not partake of those things and we still made it. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's true. And, and, and I think the the reason why I was kind of leading up to that is because I, I want people to understand that you, there will be sacrifices involved to doing it. Um, I, I think there's, there is increasingly become, and I'm certainly not suggesting that this is your position, Melissa, but there, there's increasingly become this expectation that no, I should be able to have all of these things and have this. And maybe in a perfect world, that would be great. But I will say that that wasn't the expectation that we took into it. The expectation we took into it is we are not going to have certain things because we're going to make this decision. Now the end result was, is, you know, we, we had times where family helped and that was wonderful. We had times where, you know, I, we very much remember what it was like to go through the checkout line at the store and just be sitting there that praying that somehow that there was still enough money left in the account and we wouldn't have to put groceries on a credit card. Like we, we, we know what all that's like. The other thing that it did though, is that it put us in the, it put us in a mindset with what our expectations were with, you know, we don't, we don't got a lot of fancy cars. We don't got a lot of fancy jewelry. We don't got a fancy house. Um, but it's all, it's all good. It's all what it, it certainly met with what our adjusted expectations were for what we were going to own. And then we ended up prioritizing the things that we would have fun with. So we didn't go out to the movies all the time, or we didn't go out to amusement parks every year. We didn't have a family vacation once a year where we took a week or two weeks and, you know, drop five grand going someplace. Like that was just not a thing. It doesn't mean we never had trips like that, but it was once every three years. It wasn't once every one or once every four years. Um, in the meantime, we, we had a lot of fun as a family doing other stuff. One of the things that, you know, we were blessed to be able to, to get at the right time and we timed the market right. And we, we were able to get a little bit of property, which means that having animals and, and having a garden and, you know, playing outside and running around in the Creek and our kids having a rope swing and being able to go out there and catch little fish and stuff like that. That was, that was our idea of going out and having a good time. And the exchange also afforded us the opportunity to be able to be the ones pouring into our kids' education. And it means that instead of putting my kids on the bus at 7.30 in the morning and getting them off the bus at 4.30 in the afternoon, I got all of that time with our kids. And so did Nick. And, And so, you know, we used to talk about people didn't, you know, all these, these people that like need to all sit together for dinner and and things like that. And sometimes we, we were, our evening schedules were very scattered, but we got all day. We got, we got the day with our kids. And so I, I, I would submit to you that the sacrifice of, of not having a whole bunch of extra stuff during a period of our lives was worth what we got on the other end. Because our kids are pretty dang cool. (laughs) No, we, we actually like, we like being around our kids. Our, our kids are becoming adults. We want to be friends with. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty important criteria. Here's the other thing I would say though, that, and, and that all sounds good. And you might be saying, okay, Nick, but the world's changed in just 10 to 15 years, pretty significantly. So how do we do it today? 
one of the things that Tina and I have been really focused on, and we've had entire podcasts dedicated to this, is this whole concept of intentional communities. And we've also talked about this whole idea of kind of like the the you know generational family living to some degree. Now, I'm a big believer that people need their space. So we don't want to create an environment where we've got one massive home where everybody is living under the same roof. But um, would, would we like to, would we like to be, so again, we can prioritize one of two things. We can't have the big fancy house and the property that we want, but we could probably work toward getting the property that we want with a very, very modest house. Okay. Well, what does that provide? Well, it provides us an opportunity to potentially subdivide. So now when our kids are looking for a place to stay or looking for property, we have something to where they're going to be able to have ownership of something, which is far better than them wasting years upon years upon years renting, right? It might be, a, it's going to be a far more modest house, but it's going to be theirs and it's going to be property. And mom and dad are going to be there to be able to, you know, babysit grandkids, which we want to do. And oh, by the way, with enough property, we can have that garden and we can raise more livestock. And it's a great experience now, not just for us to do as a family, but now for us to do as our extended family with our grandkids. And now all of a sudden, yeah, we are, we are in a position where maybe, you know, because of those decisions that we're making, and maybe if our, uh, we have other kids that want to make the same decision and live close to us, we're able to pool resources that we wouldn't have been able to pool before. So now we don't have four kids that all need to have, let's, let's talk about a luxury item. We don't need four kids that uh, have four separate pools because we live in four different States. We, we all live close enough to where you just get in the, you get in the car and you drive down, you go to grandpa and grandma's and we're all going to swim in the pool together. All right. Or we're all going to do something. We're going to, you know, ride the four wheeler or whatever it is. Right. So it's not this idea that you're sacrificing everything. It's the question of you're having that sort of intentional community. And by the way, this can be with friends too, but it's this idea where, okay, you have, you have things that belong to you and that are yours and you have your own roof and your own house that you're going to manage. But let's see how we can actually pull other resources to where we can support and help one another in a way that's actually fun and makes sense. And so I, I will just tell you, not telling anyone else to do uh, what to do with their life, but in order to try to achieve what you're talking about, that kind of idea of, of ownership and, and have, being able to save and being able to retire and being able to have that close family connections and those ties, that's the next step that we're looking at trying to do. Not because we're going to force our kids into it, right? Our kids might decide, hey, I got, you know, I got an opportunity. I got to move to Pennsylvania. We get that. And, and, but we always want them to know where home is. And we always want to have a, a, a little space. And, and for us, we wanted that to be a little space in Virginia where they can always come and move and we can cut off some property and they can build their own house right there and sending the kids up to grandpa and grandma so they can go out on a date night or not having to go to the store because, you know, we're, we're raising all the meat we don't eat from good ranchers <laughs> and, um, or, or having that garden or having that little communal area. We can all come together and we can have cookouts together. And we, again, we can swim in the pool or we can go shoot down at the range or, um, we have deep, meaningful relationships with yeah. our family again. And, and I mean, we talk about losing the American dream in a monetary sense, but think about what's happened to the family and how many people can't stand their own family. Yeah. And why, why is that? You know, what happened to break everything down to make that not happen anymore? And so to me, the having the deep, meaningful relationship with family and just knowing that you have, it's not that you want your kids to come back and mooch off of you, yeah. but if, if they were to take a risk to try to start a business and then just everything kind of something happened with the economy and it collapsed or whatever, they would always have a place to go home to. 
Well, always. And that's the idea. It's like if you if you're if you're kind of living like that and you have those close relationships with family and then all of a sudden all of a sudden one day my daughter is at the store and she's not sure if the groceries are going to come through. The real easy solution is now nah, you're just just coming over and eating with mom and dad and and bring the grandkids over because we would love it and um you know, the, the, those are the sort of those are the sort of environments that we want to help foster and create. So when we look at all these economic issues, and we, we look at all the ways that the government is trying to solve it, what we find is the government is actually creating far more issues than they're actually solving. And then I would argue to Tina's point, if you want to if you want to explain one of the greatest reasons for I believe the disintegration of the family in this country, it's because the government has tried to play mom and dad in a way that it quite simply never will be able to. And it's it's about time that we get back to just enjoying that responsibility and recognizing that when you have those close communities through your family, through your friends, through your church, that is your, that is your welfare program. If things go wrong um, on top of that, it, it's, it's just building that sort of community where you're, you're not just surviving. You're actually thriving in that environment because the things that you value are the relationships around you with the people that mean the most not necessarily the boat or the trip. And you might be able to have both those things and that might be great. Um, I don't got a boat. We don't take a lot of fancy trips or travel, but I got to tell you, I, I want to, I want to trade what we have, uh, for any of those things. And so I think understanding that in order to be valuable in the economy, you have to figure out what's your economy, what's your economy that you're operating, what sort of capabilities that can you develop to either design certain things that make you more self-sufficient or resilient or make you think or capabilities that make you more valuable in a larger economy. Develop those things, develop those skill sets, those capabilities, and then surround yourself with the sort of people that are going to encourage you, but also that you're going to be able to engage in meaningful relationships as well as meaningful economic relationships as well. All right. I think I'm going to close it down right there. I want to thank everybody for joining us for this episode. Thank you for the questions. Thank you for the comments. Thank you to Roger for the initial topic that we decided to go with today. I hope that the things that we discussed right here were beneficial for you. Hopefully, maybe even beneficial for some of the students that are going to be debating these issues. Once again, if you want to have some influence on the things that we talk about on this show, joining our community chat is an excellent way to do that. You can find the link in the show notes page. And I will just tell you right now, we get a huge kick out of going in there and talking about issues. Sometimes they make it on the show. Sometimes they don't talking about updates within our, our 90 day improvement projects, which I really think, I really think here within the next year, the next uh, one of these days, we're going to kick off a 90 day improvement and it's not going to be just talking about it here. It's actually going to be going to a place, physically meeting up, having guests, having speakers, having experts where people can actually go connect, start to build those intentional communities, both locally, regionally, and nationally. And Hey, we got some people internationally as well, and so we'd love to uh, and continue to foster that. And I'll just leave here with by saying, Joe W., thank you very much, and Ender as well. Um, Joe, your humility and character are a breath of fresh air in the current world. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, my wife can tell you sometimes I'm a real punk, though, but I do try to be the best uh, that I can be. And then Ender, as a young Christian man, your advice and your video has been absolutely invaluable to me. Never change, never bad as society's expectation. God bless you. Uh, thank you very much. I, I will say that the, the moment you realize that your identity is in Christ— um, everything else that's going on in the world. It can be frustrating. It can be challenging, but it never shakes who you are. Thank you very much for joining us and we will see you next episode.